0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Friends, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you happy post New York City primary Ah, a day of rest and a day of hearing more and more positioning and spinning by the victors Donald Trump he came in like a wrecking ball that guy did he killed it whether you love him or hate him folks uh He's, he's taken over. He's doing it. He's getting it done. 60% of the vote is what Donald Trump carried in his own state. With Kasich coming in second, Cruz coming in third. Cruz really uh, disappeared. We're going to have to talk to Joe about that. It's the whole New York values thing. It's the New York values, and uh, you, know, you make one comment about a bunch of New Yorkers and their lack of values. And then all of a sudden it bites you. Hillary Clinton also took uh, the the primaries on the Democratic side. 57.9% of the vote is what she carried. And uh, I believe got all of the delegates there. No. Oh, no. Uh, Trump did. Yes. Trump got all the delegates. Hillary got a percentage. 60. She got 169,
2: I think, to 106. Mm-hmm. Something,
1: something like that. You have it right there. Yeah. One, 139 there. to 106. There you go. So We're going to have to talk politics, folks. Now, again, we know you love that, but who better to help us with that but our Washington insider, Joe Cannon, he'll be joining us in a few minutes on the phone, and uh, we are going to go through everything. What does this mean? What does this mean to the race going forward?
2: Trump needs 400 delegates.
1: 400 delegates.
2: To get to the 1237 or 1247. I mean, seriously,
1: you can't just throw out a bunch of Trump stakes to these people and close the deal well same way Hillary Clinton needs 483 delegates oh it's just a foot race now folks so we'll get to Joe Cannon in just a few minutes we'll also uh do what we can to give you the information the tools you need to live a healthier life and really just be informed you know you can get the news anywhere but uh, you can only get our kind of news here because it's special it's a little sideways at times Uh, it's a it's a little sideways we, we really like how sideways it can get. So let's uh, first, though, get to the headlines and uh, find out what's going on with uh, from Katie Jarvis. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Katie?
3: Thanks, Matt. Yesterday were the New York primaries, and Donald Trump took 60% of the vote. Along with the win, Trump adds 89 delegates to his lead. On the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton barely beat Bernie Sanders, 57% to 42%, and the former Secretary of State took home 139 delegates. And New York City said there were some irregularities in primary voting. A New York City official ordered an audit of the city's election authorities, citing deep concern over widespread report of poll site problems and irregularities. As voters cast their ballots in the primary elections, city officials received reports of polling stations that failed to open on time and were not able to tell voters when they would be operational. Also, there were allegations of widespread removal of eligible voters from registration rolls and incorrect party affiliations on voter records. The Michigan Attorney General plans to announce criminal charges tomorrow in connection with the Flint water crisis. One of those expected to be charged is a city official who erroneously said that all homes in Flint used to test water had lead service lines. The attorney will announce federal and misdemeanor charges against at least two people and maybe as many as six. And California has the nation's most polluted air. A new American Lung Association report says two of California's urban areas are America's most polluted areas. Bakersfield topped the list. It had the most extreme air quality days due to particle pollution. Particle pollution comes from heavy traffic, diesel trucks, and farm equipment. But Los Angeles retained its title as the number one city for harmful ozone pollution. The National State of the Air report found that 166 million Americans nationwide... Live in counties where they're exposed to unhealthful pollution levels. The figure is largely increased from last year's report, where there were only about 138.5 million people living in those conditions. And that's the update for today. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Katie. Well done. You know
1: um, that whole Flint, Michigan. Now the the is it the governor that's going to drink the water? He's going to drink the water. That's what he said. Rest in peace. Good luck, buddy. That whole thing's a mess. You got to go in, dig the pipes up. I'm not a plumber, but you can't have lead pipes.
2: No. But it'll be a mess. It'll be tons of money, and nobody can uh, move because their homes <sighs> and, are and connected to And it's just a
1: blame fest, right? Everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reality is, we didn't know 50 whatever years ago that these pipes were going to be such a problem. And, and they have. And landlords are the ones their, too. There's steps have they could have
2: taken to ensure the lead pipes wouldn't leak, and yeah. they didn't do
1: that. So bah. Hey, um, back to New York. It's been an interesting, I think, couple of weeks because you haven't heard much from Cruz. Is Cruz still running? He is. Where has he been? Cali- he was in California
2: a couple of days in- ago. little Disneyland. There's been some uh, Pennsylvania sightings Okay, since those two uh,
1: primaries are coming up. Because for any of you that were going to just think that this was the end, no. Next Tuesday, five more states, which will be super fun for probably Hillary and Donald and maybe Kasich, I guess. I mean, he's he's investing a lot in he invested a lot in New York and hey, pulled a really, I guess, strong second, (laughs) second to Trump, who had 60 percent of the vote.
2: Yeah, Kasich had 25
1: percent. So So,
2: relatively strong.
1: Yeah. Uh, Here is Donald's response to the to his results last night.
4: We don't have much of a race anymore, based on what I'm seeing on television. Senator Cruz is just about mathematically eliminated. We've won, and now, and especially after tonight, close to 300 delegates more than Senator Cruz. We're really, really
5: rocking.
1: We're rocking. Hmm. Uh, he, that's That's the new phrase, and you'll hear it all over the news. This is the new spin from Trump. He's mathematically Cruz is uh, mathematically not capable of winning anymore. He's
2: mathematically eliminated well, getting the nomination now now it comes can you block Trump from getting yeah. it so that you
1: have to go to convention? see, but this is this is where Trump has a problem because uh, Cruz remember, doesn't necessarily believe you always have to win the race. you just have to get the delegates.
4: It's really nice to win the delegates with the votes. You know, it's really nice. Nobody should be given delegates, which is a ticket to victory, and it's not a fair ticket. And even though we're leading by a lot and we can't be caught, it's impossible to catch us. Nobody should take delegates and claim victory unless they get those delegates with voters and voting.
1: Yeah. Now, it's not the rules. The rules are the delegates make the call. Yeah. But I guess Donald is wanting to change the rules. I mean, I, I like Donald's idea better. It seems like if you voted, your delegates should follow your vote. But that's not actually how it works. No, because this is a club. Right. This
2: isn't a federal election. Right. So they can make their own rules. They can show up as, as I, I was watching some show. They said they could show up at the convention, pull out a, a magic wizard's hat <laughs> and just conjure up whatever result they want. And that's what they do. That's what the club Harry can Porter. choose. Yeah. So, I mean, this whole thing is it, it's interesting, this whole idea of these are the rules and you have to do it this way. And it's like the rules are whatever the Republican committee
1: wants them to be. Right. By state, by state, by state. Right. Yeah. I mean it's it's still too goes the, back to the state. The
2: national committee has kind of stayed out of it many feel because they kind of saw some chaos coming and they didn't want to be blamed for it.
1: Well, in Colorado it even did it. Did they, you see that? Yeah. The
2: ten, they, they had, the people get got up on stage to give a 10 second it was presentation of why they should be the delegate. And one there guy, were
1: hundreds of them. So one like guy, every 10 seconds. One
2: guy got up and just said his name six times and whatever number the system they had, like number 494, you know. And, and he just said his name and then walked away. Uh, I'm like, what's going on? And
1: they, they don't even – nobody voted in the state. But there, those there are your no, delegates. You went to the – you, but you the, voted for your delegate. So yeah. if the guy was pro-Trump, then you're like, okay, I, I want him. Yeah. Or if it's Cruz, okay, I'll take him. Or if it's the guy that listed his name six times. There you go. That's a great name. I'm going to vote for him. Or some women got up with an
2: anti-Hillary, anti-Bernie Sanders rhyme. Oh, really? Yeah, and you're like, what? And it was just 10 seconds. And that it was cute. Just people it's, just It's turned. like running
1: for class office. It is. But it's, it's a presidential election. That's kind of scary.
2: So I can see why that seems sort of
1: yeah. sketchy. It ticks him off. In sure. Colorado. But that's how they chose to do it. But we may end up going to a convention. Trump has an opinion about the convention.
4: It's a crooked system. It's a system that's rigged, and we're going to go back to the old way. It's called you vote and you win. We're going to go into the convention, I think, as the winner, but nobody can take an election away with the way they're doing it in the Republican Party.
1: Yeah. Hmm. But again, and Reince Priebus from the GOP will say, it's not how it works. It's not how it works, Donald. We, I mean, we made the rules— a year ago. A year ago. And the states have these rights. The states have the method of selecting how their delegates will be elected and selected.
2: And these these rules and different ways of electing delegates, it's all discoverable. They're on their websites. They're full disclosure. You can
1: read them. And the Trump campaign apparently was unaware. And- but But the fun thing is, is now everyone's going to go to the convention. And it's not just going to be one of those boring conventions where you just, you know, have parties and – have fun. It will if 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 Trump hits the the, if number. Hits the number. If he keeps running the cuz he's he's going to have a good week next week. If he hits the delegate count then Then, he, then if he over. hits Indiana, you know, he'll get Oregon, I guess, and Washington. I mean, he's he could run the table. He could. It's Donald Trump running the table. But uh, Paul Ryan, a lot of people are saying I'm not going to the convention now. I mean, a lot of the big GOP names, they're not going.
2: Some of them have told people to stay away. Don't don't get in there and get involved and get, you know, connected to any of the chaos that could happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe stay away from the convention. You don't want to be in the video when it all goes crazy. So Paul Ryan, though, is who's basically the chairman of the convention is um, He's pleading. Go to the convention. People will make the decision on what they want to do. If they're delegated, they better not skip it.
6: But if it's they're not a delegate, you know, I haven't gone to every one of the conventions myself. I've, but it's not because of that. So I think if you, if you were planning on going to the convention, you should go.
7: Some Republicans are worried about being tied too close. Oh, I don't the think
6: conditions. so. I think I think we should go. I think this is this is our convention, nom- making our nominee. Uh, so I think everybody should participate.
1: It's going to be fun. Plus the balloons, <laughs> the amount of balloons that'll be released. Now, Paul Ryan. Everybody kind of calls him the white horse, right? They're thinking that maybe there's a chance that Trump won't have enough on the first ballot, Uh, second ballot, no, not enough. Cruz will fade. They'll be able to bring in some other person, a Paul Ryan, as the white knight to save the party and still – he was on Stephen Colbert's show last night and, you know, Paul Ryan was positioned as being the speaker, and he kept saying, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. And, it, and now he's the speaker.
2: But they gave him weekends
1: off. Yeah. He, he, he's he, like, OK. He basically wrote his ticket and then – yeah. So, so Stephen Colbert wanted to know, really, are you, are you wanting to be the president? And uh, here is this incredible exchange between Stephen Colbert and uh, Paul Ryan.
6: Yes or no, would you accept the nomination? No, Steven, I have said I do not want nor would I accept the Republican nomination. Got it. So you're considering the nomination? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Okay, I'll give you some time to mull this one over. <laughs> How about now? Still no. So that's a maybe? <laughs> no, it, it's a no. Like a no-no? Or one of those, no, I don't want to be Speaker of the House, but I'll accept it if you just give it to me no's? It's a no-no. And two no-nos make a yes? No, they make a firmer no, period. Okay, period. But if I add two more periods, it becomes an ellipsis. So, (laughs) possibly? The nomination should go to someone who actually campaigned for it. For me, that door is closed. Got it. But is the door locked?
1: (laughs) That was great. Yeah. interviewing or scripting whichever yeah he <laughs> didn't he didn't um he didn't answer the last one is it locked well who knows uh joe cannon will be joining us in just a few moments and i'm pretty sure joe will say it won't go to a candidate that hasn't been running he's already said that like three times on the show so it's looks like it's a trump ticket a cruise ticket or a Kasich tri- ticket We will find out. Stick with us, folks. In just a minute, we'll be bringing on our Washington insider, Joe Cannon. Be picking his brain to find out uh, what he thought about uh, the New York primaries and the upcoming primaries in the Northeast, um, as well as what's going on. Where do we think? What are things happening between uh, Bernie and Hillary Clinton? Should Bernie bail out now? We'll see. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Joe Cannon is on the line with us. He is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, which is an organization that is trying to uh, lower the cost of fuel and improve the markets for fuel and and uh, and gas in the United States. And Joe also has a strong history in uh, the world of politics. He's been the chairman of the Utah Republican Party, was a candidate for U.S. Senate, uh, back in the day, also served as an assistant administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency under the Reagan administration, also was an editor of the Deseret News, and um, which is an, an Intermountain newspaper with a lot of pull. And we like to have him on the show to pick his brain, especially about uh, things political. So, Joe Cannon, welcome to the show, my friend.
5: Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me.
1: Good to have you. Um, where are you today? You home? You traveling?
5: I'm actually home but yeah I'm just home right good.
1: now but uh, I'm sure you're going to be busy as always I haven't uh, I, I wanted to Washington, see
5: I will be in Washington this evening oh will whatever. you <laughs> yeah.
1: oh good that'll be fun for you hanging out with the see that that Joe is why we call you the Washington Insider right because <laughs> you're the only guy that goes to Washington regularly hey here's the question for you what did you think of New York last night and the primaries
5: well I mean uh, a lot. Uh, I think just to dispose of one part of it, I think uh Secretary Clinton completely put away Bernie Sanders. So I Did I, she? I, I never thought there was a chance that Bernie Sanders would, would uh win anyway, but I think last night on the on the Democrat side it was definitive. So I think she's she's the nominee and I don't I i really there's no chance for him to, for Bernie Sanders to, to make it. So that's what I would just say there. And I don't think there's a lot more to say. I mean, I think no. she's do, got it and that's that.
1: Do you think he should get out um, or is there an advantage or any benefit to just keep running? He has a following. He has money.
5: Well, he thinks of it, I think, genuinely. I will say this for Bernie Sanders. I I actually like listening to him of, of all the politicians, yeah. all of the five on the current stage today, he is the most authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he believes all that stuff that he says. I don't actually agree with hardly anything he says, but that he believes it is true. And it's kind of refreshing. It's, there's a certain refreshingness about it. He has a, uh, you know, he has a philosophical, ideological gyroscope. Something uh, we'll come to Trump in a minute <laughs> that doesn't have that. Yeah, but um, but. So if, you, if you're Bernie Sanders, you're in heaven. He's got a movement, cash is still rolling in. I mean, I we'll, we'll see what actually happens in the next you know month, but he's got a lot of cash. He's got a movement. Uh, why should he go anyplace? You know, right. why should he? Well, and just keep and, pushing uh, the movement. So he's just gonna you know be going after his cadre of, of folks, and he's pretty doggone successful at it. Yeah. So I, I don't. See him dropping out at all, but who knows? He might wake up and say, "You know, it's over." Um, don't know, but it doesn't look like that. I mean, just and
1: he's curiosity. helping her. Do, do you think he's helping her? It seems like she's had to put on a. She's had to put on a fight. I mean, she's had to appear.
5: Well, I do think that the last couple of debates, the last couple of interchanges, uh, which I watched, were very different. And I think he did push her and push some of her hot buttons. And I think that does give her a taste of what's going to happen with either Trump or Cruz. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad thing for her. Now, politically, structurally, it may have been a bad thing. I doubt that going forward she's going to have this problem, but she was clearly packing as hard left as she could to try to eat away at his base, and so that's grist for many dozens of thirty-second spots uh, that she'll be confronting in the fall. But I think that's behind her now. I, I, I don't think she's she. I noticed even in the last debate, she was much. She did not leap all the way to to Sanders' side of things on, for example, Israel. Uh, you know, she she kind of stuck with her defensive. Of Israel in in the face of a withering attack mm. by Sanders, and there were there were some other things where she was was not just leaping to be Me Too to Bernie Sanders. So I think that phase of the campaign is done for her. Mm. She's she's not going to be moving to uh, what she's got to do to win in November.
1: Will she be and able to is, carry his not, his followers?
5: Not moving left.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, she can't she really can't move more left, right? So she need she'd love to end the primary um so she can start, you know, pivoting back to the center. Do you think Bernie's followers are going to jump on board? I mean, it seems so, like a completely different group than just a traditional yeah. election.
5: I doubt and have always doubted, as I think many people doubt, that uh Secretary Clinton is going to have as much resonance with a, the left edge of the Democrat base as, say, for example, uh, Barack, President Obama did. So I think that, in general, she, she wouldn't have as much resonance. In particular, though, there are probably a lot of angry Bernie Sanders supporters. Hmm. So they, they will either vote for her or not vote. And the not vote could hurt her in some states it could it, it not getting out that part of the base will hurt her in some areas yeah. some
1: states. well a lot of the youth right a lot of the younger votes um it's interesting yeah it, it, because she's she's also played kind of harsh with him and uh it'll be interesting i i guess she'll have time to win him over but again she's not she's just not as seemingly exciting as uh as the burn. Talk about Donald. What do you think about Donald? I mean he his was a serious thumping. He he cleaned it out.
5: He for the first time, two things happened for the first time yesterday. One is he he significantly outperformed the pre election polls. Mm. I think I think on average he got a a seven percent better than the average that people that the pre you know the pre primary polls say he was going to get, so that's significant, and it's also the first time that he's gotten more than fifty percent of the vote in any state. So hmm. the, you cannot gainsay one bit that was a complete and total victory for Donald Trump. Now, what that means going forward is a different story, but but you can't take away that he annihilated. Uh, Well, he definitely annihilated Cruz. Yeah. did get three
1: delegates, I think, uh, out of it. Yeah, Cruz got zero. Kasich got three. But he spent – Kasich spent everything in New York to get 25 percent of the vote.
0: Yeah, yeah. It
5: was not a a happy day for John Kasich.
1: Now, is – and and meanwhile, by the way, it also seems like Cruz disappeared. He was – It seems like he wasn't in the news, really, for two weeks. Does that not kill a campaign? Uh,
5: Well, I mean, one of the big anomalies of this campaign, just in general, is news coverage. If you look at what's, what's called earned media, that's to say just media you get by appearing on talk shows and having your surrogates appear and being on the nightly news, Donald Trump has had nearly according to the New York Times, $2 billion Ugh. of free earned media. Wow. The next, the next closest one is about um, not quite a third, a little over a third of that, and that's Hillary Clinton. When you compare uh, Trump to Cruz, he's had you know six or seven times as much media coverage as Trump versus Cruz. Wow. And Cruz is in second place, and everybody else is, you know, off the charts below, below that. Well, that's, that's not true. Right. I guess you've got Rubio and, and uh, Bush got also a couple hundred million each, so a little less than Cruz. But combined, Trump is double Bush, Rubio, Cruz, wow. and Kasich combined.
1: That's crazy. Uh, so, and he paid uh, nothing.
5: And he paid nothing. No, so of course that's how he's going to build a wall. He made
1: two billion and he paid nothing.
5: <laughs> it's, it's kind of a joke when somebody asks uh, Trump, "Well, how are you going to? Uh, how are you going to get the Mexicans to pay for the wall?" He said, I, "I don't know, but I got the media to pay for my campaign."
8: Oh, uh, so, you,
5: you know, it, it's, it's true. Staggering. Now, having said that, Cruz has been out of the news, uh, but not out of the game. So he's been apparently assiduously working the vineyard in other other states to get these delegates, and either to get delegates for him or deny delegates
1: yeah. to uh, Trump. He's cheating. And, he's like a horse thief. He's, uh, he's well, stealing horses. Yeah, Address I, I that, Joe.
5: Make, I, I need to make my familiar disclaimer. I could be pretty dispassionate uh, about uh, Senator Clinton and uh, uh, I mean Secretary Clinton and Senator Sanders and and Senator Cruz and Governor Kasich. I'm not objective about Trump. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just think he's toxic. I'm just going to say that. So you take everything I say about this with a grain of salt. But Cruz, I mean Trump is just simply a whiner. Like last night, he annihilated. Yeah. He won. destroyed. Did yeah. he give a victory speech? Yes, he gave a victory self-congratulatory, narcissistic speech. But he still found time to whine <laughs> about the alleged misdeeds of Cruz and how he's running you know, this, this campaign. And, and the thing is it's so astonishingly hypocritical. If you look at the popular vote, which Trump touts all the time, so far among, on the Republican side, he's gotten exactly 33% of all the popular vote, that would be 8.7 million wow. versus 13 million votes for not Trump, i.e., Cruz, Rubio, and Kasich. Yeah, that's not, that's not counting even you know Bush and other little smaller votes. So he's got 33 percent of the popular vote and 49 percent of the delegates. Yeah, who's who's winning this rigged? Uh, delegate selection process.
1: Oh, that's a great uh, way to look at it. they a third of the yeah. vote with ha- almost half of the delegates. Delegates,
5: right. So he's complaining about a system that is structurally benefiting him as the mm. front runner. And, you know, so I, it's, you know, there's just a lot of hypocrisy in it. A, B, uh, you know, there's the lawyers have a kind of a famous statement. If you have the fact you pound the facts. If you have the law, you pound the law. If you don't have the facts or the law, you pound the table. <laughs> and Trump is a really great table pounder. Uh, basically, part of it is his embarrassment at really Mr. Genius not even knowing the rules and not even uh, you know uh, staffing up to fight on that battleground. Yeah. And so it's you know the fact is the rules still are helping him again. Just going back, thirty three percent of the popular vote, and uh, nearly fifty percent of the delegates. And and just back on popular vote, by the way, you know Trump is like intimating, hinting, uh, or not. He actually Trump is not capable of hinting anything, but trumpeting that. Oh, look how well I did in New York. Well. Bernie Sanders himself almost got as many votes as all of the Republicans put together. Oh, wow. The GOP, the GOP vote in New York... It's anemic. ...was eight hundred and fifty seven thousand. Yeah. The Democrat vote was 1.8 million, a million votes more. There is no chance Trump or any other Republican is ever going to take New York, mm. period, at the end. And that statement is going to be it's true in California. However many Republican voters... Come out and vote in California. California is not ever going to go Republican, but not ever. But in this election, is not going to go Republican. So uh, Trump, who has a, a, only a casual relationship with the Constitution or certain mm-hmm. realities here, it's not about majority vote. It never has. No. At the at the national level, and it's definitely never been at the state level. I mean the primary candidate selection process in either party forever right anything it's much more open now than it's been in the past on on both sides
1: well this is why we need you joe because you're you're helping us understand that's what i feel like is we're all ignorant to what's really going on and we need we need to know what's really happening instead of just we just keep taking the line of all of the of the media and the politicians let's take a break with you joe we'll come back i want to come back and, and talk to you um about that is is there any way to win it seems like the republicans are losing their power we'll get to it because all the big cities it seems like the gop aren't winning in big cities big states we're not winning with the masses we win in the middle of the country but not on the extremes well, stick with us we'll continue this discussion with our washington insider joe cannon we'll be right back The Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with our Washington insider, Joe Cannon. Joe is the CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation. Go to fuelfreedom.org and you can find out about the fight uh, that they are taking there to lower your fuel costs here in the United States. Uh, also, um, he was a chairman of the Republican Party. He knows the he knows the Washington um, political you know facade. He knows the front and the backside of the political world and. Uh, we're having him walk us through, and we just learned right there. For example, Donald Trump complains about the process, even though the process is giving him half of the delegates, and he's only won a third of the vote. Hmm, that's interesting. So the process seems to be working. Joe, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, thanks, Matt. What do you think about this? Are, is is the GOP has it has it lost its power? It seems like it's. It's floundering. Everyone's talking about this is the restructuring of the GOP or whatever. But also, it seems like you can't win an election without winning big states and big cities. And the GOP is struggling with that.
5: Well, there are, actually, you're asking two questions, and I think one of them is a very serious question. If you're looking at, what, at the GOP, the Republican Party today, it could well be, no matter what happens at the convention, no matter what happens in the election, it could be a dead man walking right now. That's yeah. That could be the, the GOP, but not for the reason that you said. I'll, I'll come back to the demographics nationally in a second. But the uh, what you've got, and I think I've said this before in your shows, basically this whole Trump phenomenon has ripped the scab off the kind of ugly fact of the, of the Republican Party that's really three parties— that have so far gen- generally been able to coalesce around one candidate. But that includes a lot of populists uh, who Trump is appealing to, and they're finding, well, maybe they're not real Republicans after all. Maybe they really are for someone like Trump, who, you know, differs materially from Republican philosophy. So it could be, is, you know, if Trump wins, he's not going to be President Trump. If he loses, if he if he wins the nomination, he's not going to win the election. Huh. If he loses the nomination, it could just end up tearing the party. You talk about Hillary not connecting with Bernie's base. Well, it's a way bigger problem, far bigger problem on the Republican side. If if a Cruz gets the nomination, what's going to happen to all those voters, the the one third of the voters that supported Trump? Well. Some of them are going to come from Cruz, but a lot of them aren't. So you you could be seeing, like I said, the GOP could be a dead man walking. Wow. Right now.
1: What what yeah. happens? What happened? I mean, what do you foresee happening if if it is a dead man walking and the GOP is divided into three? Does that mean another party emerges? Does that mean what?
5: Um you know, the Republican Party, by the way, it did start out as a third party in the 1850s. Right. So, you know, that that's a long time ago, and things are pretty much solidified. I don't really see a, a strong third party movement. I just see a fragmented Republican Party unable to get across the finish line at the, at the presidential election could well be. How long that's the case, I mean, you know, the, uh, when we look backwards, things seem linear, but in reality history is not linear and who knows is there another ronald reagan out there on the republican side that could unite the party ronald reagan was keenly aware of the divisions within the party and was very masterful at pulling all those together yeah. uh so that, that you might need that now and I, I do want to say by the way that one of the things that you're, one of the reasons for this phenomenon that is now becoming clear is trump has a bunch of media enablers and it turns out they are uh, more populous, so their ratings are based on that third of the people who like Trump. Hmm. So they cater to Trump. That's you know Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, Greta, Greta Van Susteren. Well, these folks are saying, "Well, wait, that's our base too."
8: Interesting.
5: And MSNBC and CNN all get big ratings, pops when they feature Trump. So they're all catering to the same minority uh, set of people who are supporting Donald Trump Mm. in a a very fanatic way. Let me go back to the the bigger picture, though. Um, What you do realize is that the the Republicans own the House, and I think they're going to own the House for a long time. They are in control of the Senate. That is in jeopardy, but it's mostly in jeopardy because of the number of Republican versus Democrat senators who are up in this cycle. So there's a chance when you look at the map of the country, and you, you sort of alluded to this, just imagine a, the map of the United States. So you can do this on radio. That's the beauty of radio. Exactly. Imagine Use map. your mind. It is mostly red, except for the left and right edges, mm-hmm. and most cities, virtually all cities in between. Um So what that augers for is you'd think that the Senate would actually be more red than it is because there are more red states by a long, long way than blue states. So in the natural gravity of things, you'd see a a redder Senate, a more Republican Senate than you have today. But when it comes to the popular vote, those blue areas pretty much equal the red areas. So you you always have these tightly contested presidential elections. But but if you look at the national average, let's just dispose of Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, annihilates each of the three Republican candidates by uh, more significantly than uh, Secretary Clinton does. But since it's going to be Clinton, let's look at Clinton versus Trump, Clinton versus Cruz. People, you know, Trump is saying, well, I, I can win. There's, no chance he can beat Hillary Clinton. She gets uh, on average nearly 49% of the vote. He gets uh, about 40% of the vote. And that's a, you know, that's a locked in solid 40%. It's very hard to see how he expands that base, no matter how much he pivots. Uh, Cruz, on the other hand, is, um, you know, it's it's only like 2% difference and Clinton beats him by 2%. But that's, easily in the margin of of error. And a lot of people say, well, you know, Cl- uh, uh, Cruz is an unlikable guy. I I personally kind <laughs> of share that view, by the way. But so he's an unlikable guy. But his unfavorables are virtually identical to Clinton's unfavorables. So, so they can match what up. what we have is each candidate, each party nominating a candidate with really high unfavorables – and so then you then you get back down to what a lot of sort of bigger thinkers michael Perone and and carl rove on the republican side will argue that now you you really now have a referendum on the third term of president obama mm. and regardless of party by the way third terms of presidents don't end very well, generally speaking. Um, so you've, you've got a, a pretty long history, sort of a logic of... Uh, so Secretary Clinton is sort of stuck with running for that third term. In other words, she, she cannot not run for it and not completely alienate her base, or, or significantly alienate her base. She does that, she can't win. Hmm. So um, in, a, in a battle of you know kind of unpopular people, uh, there's sort of a tide running against, and this would be exactly the same case if we were running for the third term of a Bush. A Bush. Uh, right, right. The only, the only time that's really worked was the third term of Ronald Reagan, and you had a lot of factors there that aren't generally present for third terms. You really did have the collapse of the Soviet Union. You really did have a peace dividend. I mean, a lot of things came together to make it... Uh, make it good for for george hw bush
1: is it possible that we're just going to burn out the populace we're going to burn out the because if i just the way you were describing that i'm thinking okay so there's a lot of energy in sanders but he's going to be crushed by the weight of the clinton campaign there's there's an interesting weird energy it seems like different energy in trump but he may not be able to, to pull it off as far as um, getting the, all of the delegates in the nomination, let's say. so then you're left with two people that no one that, that the majority don't seem to be passionate about, and then they go battle, and then we're left with one president half of the people didn't even want, and no, and the other half weren't even jazzed by.
5: Well, to be fair, most presidents only win in the low fifties. Okay. Most. And and in fact, uh President Obama is the first Democrat since nineteen sixty four to win more than fifty percent of the vote. Huh. Carter didn't win fifty percent of the vote. Bill Clinton did not win fifty percent of the vote in either of his elections. Um we know that George W. Bush didn't win 50% of the vote yeah. in, 2000, uh, in 2000. So, you know, it, we do live in a divided country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's divided. Uh, things are a little more nasty this year, maybe a lot more nasty, but we've talked about this before on your show. You, you go back to the 1800s, you saw some really, really nasty <laughs> elections. Yeah, you didn't have social media, but you had more people reading newspapers than than you do today. So, I, I guess I'm not overly pessimistic. I, I'm a little bit depressed that you didn't get kind of more popular candidates on either side. Um,
1: yeah, it seems like a popular person um, right now could could do a lot of good.
5: If you take the five candidates, the two most popular, likable guys are not going anyplace, Kasich and right. Sanders. Right. And the three in the middle, uh, uh, Clinton, uh, Trump, and Cruz, n- not one of them is likable. I mean, Trump's negatives are, if anything, even more vast than, than Secretary Clinton's hmm. favorables. So you, you've got people that are appealing to you know, sort of narrower segments of even their parties, let alone the population as a whole.
1: Yeah, that's oh. All right, uh, Joe. What uh, what do we need to be watching out for? We've got about a minute. What uh, what should we be looking for? What are you well, seeing? Well,
5: yeah. I mean, I say this a lot, but I'm I'm really more and more disturbed about the rise of anti-Semitism, even in the U.S. But in France, the last year we have statistics, uh, Jews make up one percent of the less than one percent of the population of France, but fifty one percent of all of what, are they don't call it that in France, but, but hate crimes. So mm. like physical attacks, uh, attacks on synagogues, so 51% of all of that category of crimes are against Jews, and those numbers are very similar in other European countries. So for all of the concern about Islamophobia, most of the attacks, you, you cannot wear a, a kippah, a, a yarmulke, in France anymore. And I am getting Mm. this from from a number of my Jewish friends who travel over there. Uh, They're afraid to talk, you know, even in taxicabs, about to use the word Israel. So there's this this brooding, darkening uh, gloom uh, over Europe when it comes to Jews, when in the lifetimes, the memories of people living today You had this horrible, horrible nightmare of World War II, but a lot of the same words. So you think that's in Europe. Well, at Harvard University, this week, you had a a former Prime Minister, Livni, uh, who's a member of the Knesset in Israel, and, and Dennis Ross doing a forum. A student in the Harvard Law School got up and said, to the Israeli, you are a smelly person. It smells bad in here. Ugh. You're you're smelly. Well, you know that's yeah. That's one of the big, big anti-Semitic uh, German. You know, Hitler uh, promoted that. So, you know, this is the Harvard Law School wow. in the United States of America, where a, a person getting up and saying an openly, really crudely anti-Semitic thing. Say, I think I think this is something
1: worth watching. No, yeah, I agree. I mean, it is. It's uh, it's it's just echoes from the past, isn't it, that brings chills uh, to today. Well, Joe, we appreciate you and your great work. It also looks like, just so you know, uh, the Dodgers first in the National League West.
5: Thank you very much. I was going to lay off the Dodgers, but yeah,
1: they're doing okay right now. <laughs> they're doing all right. Uh, they lost, by the way, to the Braves. Sorry about that.
5: They got killed. Uh,
1: they, they got, got creamed, yep. Yeah. But, it'll. you know, there's always tomorrow. Or actually, probably today. Joe Cannon's his name. Thanks, Joe. Everybody, go check out uh, Joe's work at Fuel Freedom Foundation at uh, the website, fuelfreedom.org. And um, great stuff. Folks, it's our world, right? Let's watch out for each other. And let's pay attention when people are, um, you know, being less than human with one another. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. Hey, well, if you thought Donald Trump was the only guy that uh, you know was c- crying about democracy and people's rights for their vote, well, the British government has been also has also been accused of riding roughshod over democracy. After a minute, one of their ministers there um, basically suggested that they will not be naming the two hundred uh, million pound polar research vessel Bodie McBoatface it's a travesty the people have spoken and he is blatantly ignoring the voice of the people for some reason the science minister Joe Johnson doesn't like the name Bodie McBoatface you asked, they delivered there is a process now for us to review all of the public choices many of them were imaginative some were more suitable than others but they did not like Bodie McBoatface. Johnson said, I think we were clear when launching the competition that we were looking for a name that would be in keeping with the mission. Hmm. Well, what is more in keeping with the mission of a boat? Exploring the polar ice caps. Yeah. And adding Mick Bodie, that's, that's part of the UK history. Yeah, Bodie, Scottish heritage. Yeah. Mick Bodie, no, Bodie McBoatface. I mean, come on. Anyway, he says this boat is going to be doing science on some of the most important issues facing humanity. Global warming, warming, climate change, now, rising sea levels. None
2: of this was disclosed as the voting was uh, commenced. So no. people were voting without knowing that he's going to go in and take away any fun options. Yeah.
1: You're going to want a name he says that fits with the gravity and the mm. importance of the subjects that this boat is going to be doing. So You're it's-
0: a monster
1: Maybe they exactly. need to call it because these are these things are huge. They are. They're like, they're Titanic. Which wasn't really that big. No. In then, comparison. But maybe, I mean, the gravity he's talking about. Yeah. It's maybe they just need to call the boat, the ship Titanic too. The ship, no fun. Yeah. Iceberg watch out. <laughs> I don't know. No fun for anyone. What's the, uh, what do you do? I don't know how you, ha- I don't know. It's just life. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information, the solutions you need to uh, to live your life. Today we're talking when uh, when religion and work conflict, what do you do? What are you supposed to do? How do you not, you know, oppress someone of another faith? How do you not... I don't know, create trouble. I mean, in in a a culture or an environment where somebody doesn't feel welcome because they just believe differently.
2: I mean. And some of the things might be things you aren't even aware you're doing. Right. And how do you, you know, how do you have a conversation that way? Because there's all sorts of. Privacy laws that get in there, and you know, the
1: HR will get involved if you do something incorrect. So, you, and how do you bring it up? I mean, if you just want to gently, nicely bring something up to your fellow, you know, if your coworker, what do you say? Right. It's difficult. Yeah,
2: and as you're you're trying to, you know, function in a business, that's just that you know you have to kind of incorporate people's lives because they're working for you. Right. They're going to be there, and so how do you? How do you address issues and, and, and make sure you're not stepping on toes, but at the same time get work done?
1: And there's a there's a beautiful blessing to be able to understand their religion and be diverse like that. Now he's, hold on, Ben. He's uh, he's going to say something. You just he, he he see you see it coming, don't you? He's going to say something, and then we're going to have to.
2: <sighs> and it's gonna, I I feel it's going to be spam ben? related. Go ahead. What Ben? As someone who
9: routinely talks to HR,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
9: You just gotta, just gotta go for it. You can't think about the consequences. Just do your best. Be mm. culturally, like, tolerant. But okay. if you mess up, no, Ben,
1: it's just always HR. Okay, but but the the goal would be Ben that we don't just fall back on HR. The goal would be that you don't really need HR because you know how to handle it and you don't say something that's inappropriate.
9: Well, I I talk to HR whether I try to be culturally. Yeah, that's like,
1: true good
9: or or not Mm. so um, i've just found it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission but
1: you know ben you know that most employees don't have a cot in the (laughs) office in hr you know that right most people don't have their own room yeah in the hr department yeah yeah so yeah maybe sometimes it's better to just be quiet yeah no seriously i'm saying sometimes it's (laughs) better ben to just be quiet I'm not like, yeah, that was just advice. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, we will get to that. Um, Cabrina Chang will be joining us. She wrote a wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review about what companies can do when work and religion conflict. We're going to see more and more of it, folks. I truly believe it as um, just as we have more immigration, but as we also just have more uh, diversity in our belief systems We're gonna have to learn how to live with each other. So we'll get to Cabrina in just a few moments and have a a, an interview on that subject and, and hopefully learn together. But first let's get to the headlines with Katie Jarvis, find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Katie?
3: Thanks, Matt. President Obama is visiting Saudi Arabia today as 9-11 accusations against Saudi Arabian officials are mounting. The president arrived as tensions surrounding a confidential 9-11 congressional intelligence report are getting more intense both at home and abroad. President Obama has urged the release of documents which conclude that Saudi officials in the U.S. might have had a hand in engineering the September 11th terrorist attacks. But Saudi officials have vehemently denied these accusations, Stateside, there is bipartisan support for a bill that would let American citizens sue Saudi Arabia for 9-11. The president opposes this bill due to the window it would open for other nations to do the same to the U.S. down the line. And Mitsubishi has admitted that they falsified testing data. Mitsubishi Motors admitted to falsifying fuel economy testing data on more than 600,000 vehicles. After the announcement, the Japanese automaker's shares dropped more than 15 percent. That's the most it's dropped in over a decade. The company said it had stopped the production and the sale of the affected vehicles, and it's made an independent panel to investigate the matter. The manipulated data involved over 100,000 Mitsubishi light passenger cars and vehicles produced for Nissan. A federal judge has approved a Ferguson reform deal. A judge gave the go-ahead for the deal between Ferguson, Missouri and the Justice Department to overhaul the city's policing and court systems. The settlement calls for diversity training, hiring an independent monitor, new software to analyze records on arrests, as well as giving all officers body cameras. The, the deal comes after an inquiry found that racial bias was present in Ferguson's policing and criminal justice systems following the death of Michael Brown. And a high school has opened an indoor shooting range. Smithfield Selma High School in North Carolina opened a shooting range for members of the Army Junior Reserve Officer Training Corps program to practice. It's a six-lane indoor shooting range where cadets can shoot with air pump rifles filled with pellets. Authorities say the students have to take a safety test and they have to sign a safety pledge as well as get permission from home. And finally, they have to demonstrate that they know how to handle one of the rifles safely. And that's an update for today. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Katie.
1: Uh, Excellent job. Interesting news. Interesting news. Hey, also, um, what do you do? You know, we were just talking about the fact that there's so many things you can't. Do you just go directly talk to somebody about something they're doing? Because nowadays it could turn into a complaint and then HR gets involved. You know, it used to be we would just take it out behind the shed. Yeah. I don't know what they do back there. I'm not sure. I never actually did that. But it seems like we can't just necessarily talk for fear of saying something wrong. And there's how do you know what to say or what not to say? It's a crazy age we
5: live in.
2: Yeah. I was, I was talking about an article I read where someone, it was like, what do you do with someone on your, your team at work is yeah. having a personal issue and it's starting to affect their work? Yeah. And, and how do you begin that conversation? How do you discuss things? And the first step was go talk to HR. Like, sir, you can't just walk up to someone you work with every single day and say, are you okay?
1: Can yeah. I help? You well, can't do that. Well, and Especially if your HR has 100 managers, all of these managers are starting to walk up to HR to just, so I'm going to now address something with a coworker. Yeah. Okay. And that's what they recommended. And
2: then the, you get a conference room and you sit down with yourself, a member of HR, and the individual,
1: and, and you have a
2: discussion. Up. And at that point, it's you're interrogating the person. Because mm. you have company representation sure. with you, yeah, and so it it makes it a, a tense situation where you're just trying to. Can I help? Is there something we can do? Should we back off on a couple assignments so you can fix your, you know, this issue going on and and you can't you can't do those types of things unless you've crossed all the line, you know, yeah, dotted it, the i's, crossed the t's, make sure everything's safe, so that. uh they understand where you're coming from, and the company's safe, and mm-hmm. uh, just complicates personal relationships.
1: Well, and I guess some of this, too, is some people don't have the skills to do no. it, right? So some, I think there's some managers that could just handle it well before they bring in HR. But there's some people that are clueless. They're mean, just clueless. The people that start with, what's wrong with you? Yeah. That would so be the wrong question. What is your deal? <laughs> you are messed up. That's how we start with Ben.
2: Well, I read those types of articles because it's like, did I have I done that here?
1: Yeah, like with our
2: staff, I'm uh-huh. always, you know, because students have, have a bunch of different. Uh, have we you noticed just, that we just went through finals, right? Yeah, so but have I mean, you noticed
1: that no one's around anymore?
2: No, because of finals, no one's here. That's what the deal so is. They,
1: <laughs> they don't have that many finals. I know. They're just you know the only one that comes in really is is Ben. Sort I of. am and the Leanna. most
9: loyal one here. I'd like that noted. Well,
1: and court appointed. You're the most court appointed one here. Yeah, your ankle bracelet makes you it, have, you to, have be to be here. here at certain times. So. Why do you, you have to bring that in all the time? Well, because it's a fact. And you also have to sleep in your cot upstairs. So that's a fact, Jack. Um, so I guess if this gets bad enough, maybe it's time that we just go by our own town and we just move away. Okay. Um, apparently, that's easier to do than you think. Let's call it Terryville.
9: Mm.
2: Terryville sounds like a great town to live in.
9: wasden World. No,
2: no, wasden. no. no. <laughs> that's a little Why don't overstated. we just call it Matt Town? Or Townsend Town? Townsend Ship? Townsendville?
1: No, just Matt Town. Matt Town? <laughs> and then it quotes, end send Okay. No,
9: then there's like a, a dead end street, and that's Matt Townsend.
1: Ooh. Don't bring my end into this. <laughs> Go on. There's a city for sale? Uh, in rural southern Nevada, you can buy a town for $8 bucks. Buying your own town is as easy as buying 500 acres of vacant land located just uh, uh, near 70, 70 miles south of Las Vegas, folks. So that's – I mean that's a good gig.
2: So it, you're buying a lot of dirt, a lot well, of sand, yeah, a you lot know, of that's desert. That's all towns
1: are before you put the buildings out there. Yeah, there's but it's it's Nevada and there's,
2: Nancy, there's nothing
1: there. Nancy Kidwell is offering the entirety of her town for just eight million bucks. She tried to sell the property in 2010 for seventeen million, so it's a steal. Wow, reduced price. Yeah. Reduced by seller. But That's she enough. couldn't find any buyers. Now the seventy-eight year old has dropped the price and is uh is uh she's including Cal Nev Aries Casino. So that's probably California right, Nevada, Arizona's casino, diner, convenience store, ten room motor or motel, R V park, and a mile long dirt airstrip. Hey. It's got everything. It's full service. You have a you have a place to eat, a place to sleep, you have a an airstrip. Wow. You could do all kinds of stuff with an airstrip. You own a casino.
2: I think it's a corner of the gas station. She's just kind of overselling it.
1: The only thing that are not for sale, let's be clear about this because this has got to be in the contract, Okay, are the residents themselves. Oh. You will not actually own any of the residents, some privately owned homes you can't own, and the small community center and a volunteer fire station built by Clark County. Oh, okay.
9: That's uh, a deal breaker. Yeah. So
1: you can't have the fire department because it's already owned by the county. <laughs> okay. But uh, Kidwell Rose. and her husband Slim- Slim founded the town in 1965 when it was just an empty swath of land along U.S. 95.
2: Do you think Slim is slim or? I doubt it. Because sometimes skinny people get the name Slim. I bet he
1: is slim and I bet he has a belt buckle. And now it's the home of about 350 people. Huh. He has a huge belt buckle that says slim. So it
2: might not just be a a dusty patch of land in
1: southern Nevada. But you would, you would, you'd be, I guess you're the mayor. McCheese, you're the mayor, and you own a casino, I guess, if you want that. Nice. Why hasn't Donald Trump stepped in? Right. He could have his –
2: well, I guess he already has land in Vegas, so maybe he doesn't want to have remote land in Vegas. It's not like that. I mean, that's big.
9: Just has to call it Trump Town. So if
2: we go there, then we don't need an HR. No. We just do what we want. Do what you want. (laughs) I think that's already
1: going on out in the desert somewhere in Nevada. It's – I don't know. I think in the end, we got to learn to just get along with people. That's why we want to talk to Cabrina Chang in a few minutes about uh, when religion and work conflict. So if if the issue you have is a religious conflict, how do you handle it? it you don't always have to start with a lawsuit. Maybe you can you know, adapt and, and employers pay attention because people have religious rights, right? So you got to be careful not to discriminate there. Um, also, just one more thing that we got we to gotta get to. So uh, I've been doing a lot of exercise lately. Okay. And um, I forgot my tennis shoes today, mm. my, run, my walking shoes, my, my walking shoes. You want to borrow Benz? Well, yeah.
9: Excuse me.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offer
1: up your shoes. I don't think they fit. Okay.
9: <laughs> yeah, I have athlete's foot too.
1: Ooh. So, Thanks. Um, help me with this, because okay. you work out a lot. I do. How You're supposed to take a break. You take a, a rest
2: day every once in a while. When do you take your rest day? I do Monday through Wednesday, take Thursday off, then work out Friday, Saturday, take Sunday off.
1: Always take the Sabbath off. Yeah. Great, the okay. gym's closed. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I'm starting to get uh, shin splints. Yeah. Is that what they're called? If
2: something hurts... Stop. Well, and then stop running on your heels. That's the other side of it.
1: I'm a hill walker. Yeah, I like to keep my toes up in the air. (laughs) Just run on my heels. So I'm sitting there. No, I know I'm out of shape or whatever. As I'm walking down the street, and I hear this clomp, 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 and I'm like thinking, Oh boy, somebody's after me. And I look back, and a guy wearing a boot Hmm. on his left foot, his right foot healthy, a broken foot wearing a boot passes me at a rapid pace and just basically lapped me. Wow. And I thought, that's pathetic. Yeah. I can't even walk faster than a guy with a boot. And he was 90. Pathetic. Well,
2: there's, there's some uh, fitness well, goals for why you. Why do I try? Catch the 90 year old with a broken foot.
1: Why do I try? I also got winded like majorly <laughs> climbing the steps on campus. There are 500 of them. Why do you try, folks, when you're still going to get passed by a guy with a boot?
9: This is turning into a very inspirational segment.
1: It's depressing. We'll fix it later. <laughs> Why do we try? Stick stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. We're going to be talking about uh, when religion and your work conflict, how to handle it with Cabrina Chang from Harvard Business Review. We'll be right back. Hey, friends, uh, you know, since 2007, the number of complaints for religious discrimination filed with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, has risen significantly. It's hard to see why. Right? It's not hard to see why when you consider everything that's going on, right? Uh, the increase in immigrants of diverse faiths, greater workforce diversity, globalization of, uh, of businesses, they all play a role and, um, and, and tend to make it a little more Complicated to to understand, maybe possibly uh, religious diversities, religious backgrounds of, of other other people. So, our goal with this uh, next segment is to figure out what we can all do to play better together and to and to preserve each other's um, religious freedom, and also in a company to to get work done right and to get our other goals achieved. And they don't have to be, it doesn't have to be an either or. You know, for many employers, we, we got to we gotta still get the widgets made and we got to get the work done. So we've asked um, uh, Cabrina Chang to join us. Cabrina is the Clinical Associate Professor of Business Law and Ethics at Boston University. She spends a lot of time researching and collaborating with experts on new ways of innovating business strategies and education. And she wrote a wonderful article in hbr a harvard business review um on this subject what companies can do when work and religion conflict cabrina chang welcome to the matt townsend show
10: thank you thank you for having me
1: you've been honored to have you and this to me is a it's a really big issue we've we've heard a lot about religious freedom and um and yet uh talk to us why why is it why is it you know boiling over today do you think what's what's the big impetus
10: Well, I think a lot of things are happening, exactly as you said, you know, an increased globalization of the workforce, um, more diverse religion in immigrant groups, and also, you know, a push on the side of employers to sort of bring your whole self to work. And they're very, you know, some employers um, host religious affinity groups or allow um, groups like that to use meeting spaces. So it's sort of a combination of more and different people entering the workforce and workplaces becoming sort of more open um, and more sort of accepting in many ways mm. of religion in general um, so it, there's bound to be you know there's bound to be in any situation you know a conflict under some kind of circumstance but I think these two sort of more recent trends are leading to an uptick in complaints filed at the EEOC. I mean, religious conflict at work is nothing new. Um, You know, it's been around for, you know, for years and years and years and years. Um, But I think, you know, all of those, all of these sort of recent developments um, make it a little... Riper than previously for for um, conflicts to arise,
1: one of the um, things that you mentioned in the article was the the situation that happened recently at a Cargill facility mm. in Fort Morgan, Colorado. Talk to us about that because it 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 seems to lay a pretty nice foundation for one example of what could happen
10: yeah, so this case um, and it is a case a, a complaint was filed in March. Um, you know I think about this case and I think it's really hard to see it's hard to see a clear direction and granted you know we don't know exactly what happened but what we do know is cargo this cargo plant in Colorado is a meat processing facility Um, so it works on a very regimented schedule with ships you know they have to disassemble a certain number of cattle per day um, it's a very regimented workforce and line. Um, so they have had um, an influx of uh, Muslim employees, and these particular employees, I think the majority of them are Ethiopian and Muslim faith um, in this little town for many, many years. And according to Cargill managers, they've always had a religious accommodation policy, and they have tried... Um, You know to make the workers feel welcome they Mm -hmm. created two spaces for prayer and reflection uh and then on one day in particular um 11 employees asked uh, their manager for their five minute break to go pray and the manager this is uh, like i said so much of this is in dispute um According to one side, you know, the manager said, well, we don't have enough people on the line to process everything we need to process, so could you go in smaller groups? I can't let 10 of you get off the line at once, so could you go in smaller groups? The other version uh, goes something like when the employee asked the supervisor, the supervisor said, you know, there's too much prayer going on, we're not going to have prayer breaks anymore, Um, you know, you can go now, but we have to change our policy. There's too many prayer breaks. Um, So two very different stories. Mm. Nevertheless, the employees took their prayer break, um, and then 10 out of the 11 um, resigned that night. Wow. Resigned at the end of their shift. And, you know, over the course of three days, it grew into about a 150-employee protest. They didn't show up for work. And... I guess, at the end of the third day, many of them were fired because they didn't give notice that they weren't going to be missing work. And um, so they violated the absentee policy, uh, I guess, that cargo had. Hmm. Um, But you can sort of see both sides of of what happened. And and it's a very, like I said, it's a very regimented workplace so that does put restrictions. Um, practical restrictions on
1: an employer. Well, and like, I mean, I've been to a lot of these plants as a consultant and you can't, you know, you shut down some lines, it's going to cost you like $10,000 a minute. So sure. yeah, I bet. So it becomes a policy of $50,000 if you have to shut down the line. I mean, but you sure. also have incredibly creative people that could find better ways to rotate employees or, you know, or, or go through the process. I guess the part of it is... Um, I guess it's almost anticipating it is, is a possibility instead of just having to react to these situations well, right, in the second.
10: Right, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and that's what makes me wonder what really is going on in this lawsuit, because if, if, these, if this group of religious workers have been at this plant since 2005, I mean, not all of these exact workers, but uh, there was a large influx of them in 2005 at this one cargo plant. And Carville has been sort of trying all along. I, I don't know what would have um, precipitated this one event to cause 150 people not to come back to work. Right. If you know, so you're right. And and I said that in that in the article that you mentioned that you know there there are ways that managers can anticipate staffing needs, and um, it you know to the extent that you can anticipate, you can plan ahead, mm-hmm. which might Knit this kind
1: of thing in the bud, and, and flexibility. It seems like too on both sides. Um, I mean, because sometimes you know it could be a, a flu virus went through the town and fewer people came in because they were sick. Then that's going to demand some flexibility for a day sure. in, right. in in some of this. Talk about Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act. Um, teach us, teach us what what really what are the rights of. Uh, against religious discrimination and, and, and employment.
10: Okay. So under title seven, there are five protected categories and religion is one of them, race, gender, national origin, race, gender, national origin, religion, and color. Um, for which, uh, an employer cannot base an employment decision, any kind of employment decision based on those five characteristics. Uh, with religion in particular, um, there are a couple different kinds of claims. For example, you could claim that you were treated differently because of your religion. Um, So, you know, I wasn't hired because I'm Catholic, that kind of claim. Um, What the workers in Carville are saying is not that they were treated differently, but that the employer refused to accommodate their religious conflict. So another type of claim is is an accommodation claim. The employee notifies their employer that there's some employment practice um, that conflicts with a religious practice. And in this case, obviously, it was the time that the, the break needed to pray versus adequate staffing on the um, processing line.
8: Mm-hmm. Um,
10: once the, under, the, under Title Seven, once the employee notifies the employer of the conflict, the employer has an obligation to figure out an accommodation, um, and this is this is not an easy thing to do. Um, you know, the law requires what's called a de minimis effort, meaning it doesn't require a ton of effort on the employer's part to accommodate. They don't, they don't have to sort of bend over backwards to figure out an accommodation. Their burden to accommodate is relatively low. Mm. That being said, uh, the employer has to try and figure it out, but also the employee has to be willing to cooperate with the employer to try and figure something out. So if the employer came up with an accommodation and offered it to the employee and the employee just flat-out rejected it, that would absolutely work against the employee because they have an obligation to cooperate with the employer in trying to figure this out. Um, the accommodation, <clears throat> excuse me, does not have to be the employee's first best choice. Um, it doesn't actually even have to be what they asked for. Um, and it doesn't have to um, eradicate the conflict 100%. Um, it just has to reasonably accommodate the conflict Hmm. um that's what the law says management sort of prudent management tells us that you know employers really should try to work with their employees and employees should really try and be flexible because both have a lot to lose and a lot to gain you know with this relationship so the law says one thing and i think you know gives relatively clear guidance for managers but i think for most managers they're they're um you know, their their savvy and their strategy will tell them that, you know, there are probably a lot more things that they could do that would really go a long way in resolving the conflict, you know, keeping morale up,
1: yeah that kind of thing. Well and it shows I think it shows everybody in the company how you'll be treated in in yeah. an extreme need or a scenario. I mean this is yeah. this is a great way to not just accommodate and help the one, but it could also show you know, we want you. We value you. A lot of companies are talking about values today and how much we care about you. And we want you to have a whole life except not here. And so if, if, you, if, if that, this is, this is a really, it's an interesting choice for companies. Um, let's take a break, uh, Cabrina and come back. I want you to come back and then walk us through. You outlined some ideas of, um, you know, just suggestions that you think would help to prevent some of the disagreements from you know boiling over into some major conflicts. so i wanted to get into those and just keep learning from you find out uh, what else we need to do to maybe soften our hearts a bit and um, become more open to others points of view as well as well as getting results we still got to deliver the goods stick with us folks more with cabrina chang and uh, her article in harvard business review this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back To the Matt Townsend Show. On uh, the phone with us is uh, our guest, Cabrina Chang. Cabrina is a clinical associate professor of business law and ethics at Boston University and also is a writer with several different publications, including Cyber Law Management and Entrepreneurship. She also um, wrote a wonderful article on Harvard Business Review's um, page, What Companies Can Do When Work and Religion Conflict. Cabrina Chang, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to have you. Walk us through um, some of the steps that, uh, and, and just suggestions you make about what we should make sure, as, as I guess, as a company owner or an employer, and as an employee, what what are the things we need to remember in order to to kind of bring our eliminate some of our religious differences at work.
10: Okay. Well, um, from a management perspective, there are several things. Like you said, that can happen both on the management side and also on the employee side. Um, In the article, and I think in general, it's always smart to start with whatever ethics policy or value statement um, that a company might already have. It seems sort of, um, not useless, but it it seems sort of light um, and not you know, not very practical and not very um, effective, but it goes a long way in establishing a culture in an environment where people generally, religion or any other issue, generally feel accepted and supported. Um, So my first suggestion would be to look at what already exists, at your, at your place of work in terms of an ethics policy and see what it says about equal treatment, regardless of traits like religion or, you know, whatever else.
1: Yeah, make um, sure you've got one.
10: Yeah, make sure you have <laughs> one, and if you don't, write one, and include equal treatment of all employees. Um, and putting it on paper is a good first step, but then, of course, it's, it's meaningless unless you actually sort of live that. So, um, you know, at employee meetings or um, whatever sort of regular meetings there might be, um, you know, mentioning it uh, goes a long way in establishing that this is going to be a workplace where we're not going to tolerate this kind of thing, but also where we're also going to welcome everyone because, you know, given everyone's differences in that, it's, it's sort of, it all, it, it's all good. It's all kind of what makes us smart and profitable and diverse and thoughtful and creative and all of these great things. Yeah. So have it codified somewhere, but also talk about it, make sure your employees know that it's something that's important. Um, you know, some employ some, some businesses go so far as to have it, you know, on posters or on plaques or, you know, just up around the office. And it, it, it seems like I said, it seems, it seems, like not a very effective um, way of communication, but in setting a culture, it's, it's kind of a, a, a small move that actually has a lot of impact. Yeah. Um, so that would be one thing to do. Um, in sort of more practical day-to-day things, look at the existing um, policies that you have in terms of time off, in terms of dress codes, um, anything that you think might possibly be impacted by a religious observance. So, you know, dress codes could um, definitely impact a religious observance with um, headscarves or wearing skirts versus pants, um, maybe wearing religious jewelry. um, You know, so look at your dress code to make sure that it's flexible enough that um, if someone wore a headdress, that would not be in violation of whatever you have. You don't have to say specifically you're welcome to wear a headdress. Yeah, right. Um, but make your make your um, uh, dress code, if you have one, sufficiently broad that all of these things are included, that, that it wouldn't possibly rule something out based on that. Um, the same is true for time off. Um, if employers have, um, you know, a set, period of time or a set policy where there's a flexible number of days off that an employee doesn't have to say what they're using it for,
8: Mm -hmm. that
10: could give employees a lot of room um, to fulfill religious observances. Um, A fixed number of of days off that could be used for different reasons, for no reason, Um, that gives employees a lot of flexibility in terms of whatever observances they might have, and it prevents conflicts. If they've got this little pool of time that they can use however they want, um, it it allows them an avenue yeah. to observe whatever whatever they need um, whatever needs observing.
1: Because um, you you could not not to interrupt, Cabrina, but you sure. could you could um, have a lot of your holidays you know geared around religious holidays, religious yeah. uh, where where people would go practice an Easter or a Christmas, and. Um, I, I, I wonder if you don't have to not do that, but you could also just open up the policy to be able to use your time whenever you want to use your time.
10: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, many employers are starting to, um, starting to do things like that and not have it specifically, you know, we're going to be closed for the two days leading up to Christmas, um, where employees can take those two days if they want. Mm-hmm. Um, or the day after Easter or, um, right, anything like that. It, it just it just avoids um, a lot of potential headaches for employers and employees because employees don't want the conflict to happen either. Um, and lastly, and, and this was something that didn't immediately jump out at me, um, but dietary restrictions, um, kosher restrictions or other dietary restrictions, you know, it's, Um, if where you work has an open kitchen, uh, where I work has a refrigerator. (laughs) There could be other places that have, you know, a a larger setup. Um, Or if um, there's a cafeteria where you work, or
3: um, if
10: where you work routinely orders lunch, keeping just in, you know, in the back of your mind that there could be some religious dietary restrictions. It's also another easy, low, like not, not a lot of heavy lifting, but an easy thing to do that could really be a very meaningful step for some employees um, and very easy to do on the part of management. Um, so, and then, like we talked about earlier, anticipating upticks in staffing. Um, in the Cargill case, um, you know, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. You know, it seems to me that their their processing line is so regimented. Um, I, I'm not really sure what their uptick in production, where or whether that might come, but they're they're so regimented um, that that's that's very tricky um, but if you're at a place of employment that is not so regimented um, as a meat processing line that has to you know that has to have a certain productivity level every single shift, uh, you know it might be worth it to. Sit down and think about um, when is your office the busiest mm-hmm. I mean it's easy to see you know around tax season if you're uh, certainly an accountant but financial planner that kind of thing or earnings reportings or holiday retail um, or if you're in higher education you know the beginning of semesters um, you know it might be worth it to sit down and think about uh, when your highest productivity and staffing needs are, um, and when your low points are, because that that will help you identify places where you really don't have a lot of room to work with and other places where you do and identifying those because the accommodation process is really supposed to be a give and take by identifying those sort of peaks and valleys, you might be able to find some kind of creative solution.
1: Mm. Yeah. And it seems like this is one of the dynamics of HR is as you're hiring and hiring more diverse groups, then Mm -hmm. you probably you have to like proactively start anticipating the needs. It's almost like the HR department needs to actively come down and talk to the managers and find out what requests are being made, what 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 you know, what are uh, you know, what um, accommodations are being asked for even just subtly or quietly.
10: Right, and that's an excellent way, by the way, of phrasing it. You would never want an HR person or anyone to sort of go around and ask employees, yeah. what's your religion yeah. and what do you think you might need?
1: We're, noticed there's, um, we're noticing there's more people from Ethiopia coming in now. So, sorry. yeah, that is you can't uh, do that.
10: But, but asking have there been requests for accommodations, I think that is a, a perfectly reasonable and smart thing to ask. Um, especially if you're trying to really be proactive and creative and trying to figure out how to make all of this work. Mm. Um, that might be, that might be one, one way to go. And as I said in the article, and, and I don't see that it has changed, you know, in, in Colorado, in this cargo plant, both sides um, sort of have lost. You know, the, yeah. the, the Muslim workers don't feel um, as though they've been sort of heard and respected and plus they're out of job but cargill is also out a lot of really good employees and in fact cargill after after they fired um the employees and they said that was not that's not something we take easily that was something that was difficult to do they changed their rehiring policy It, it used to be that if you got laid off you had to wait 180 days to reapply They changed that to 30 days to make it easier for these employees if they wanted to come back. Oh, wow. To make it easier for them to come back. Yeah. Um, That doesn't, of course, solve the underlying issue. um, But it certainly makes it clear that both sides, obviously, have a lot to lose if this doesn't work and a lot to gain if they can make it work. Mm -hmm. Um,
1: The the message I keep hearing um, over and over, though, is really... Uh, businesses accommodate, and uh, employees cooperate.
8: Right. Yeah. Adapt.
1: Right. Work together. Yeah. Don't become enemies on this. And 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 I guess every individual needs to seriously check their bias. Are you are sure. you biased about this? And and yeah, change.
10: Right. And and that cannot go. Um, that that has to be sort of acknowledged in in all of this. That you absolutely have to have that in the forefront of your mind about is bias towards Muslims or, in this case, Muslims or whatever the group may be, you you always have to keep in the front of your mind is, you know, I have to check my bias. You're exactly right, because, you know, the bias could be subconscious. Mm. Um, So I think that's a, a great point to mention, and that both have to be flexible, both. Have to be flexible, the employer and the employee, in trying to figure this out. Yeah,
1: and that's you know that's great advice, which is why I loved the article, Cabrina. Cabrina Chang oh, is her name. You. you did great. Keep keep writing, right? We need <laughs> we need more insight like this.
10: Thank you very much. You
1: bet, and thank you for being with us.
10: Oh, my pleasure.
1: You you bet, Cabrina Chang, uh, folks, keep reading her on HBR, and you can um, you can also go to cyber law management and entrepreneurship, which is a book that uh, she has written in a uh, written um, interesting insight, isn't it? It's, it's a combination and cooperation. It's easy to have the rights, you know, and to argue the rights, but we also have to cooperate in the process of finding a better solution for everybody. Um, So make sure you're willing to be a cooperative manager and employee and make sure that we're willing to accommodate as the law prescribes and just really as your character prescribes and, and defines that you should do. So interesting stuff. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. The words accommodate and cooperate, a great example of that, not in the religion-slash-work environment, would be more in just the, I guess, home, creating a home, a place where you can rest, maybe watch a little TV. A guy named Peter Berkowitz, 25, uh, was fed up with the rent and the cost of an apartment in uh, the San Francisco area. Apparently, a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco runs about $3,500 per month. So he went talked to, and talked to his buddy, and his friend said, well, okay, I'll let you, I guess, sublet a little space in my apartment. And he built, Peter built, a, a tiny little bedroom pod in the living room of his friend. Just a tiny little bedroom pod, and we'll post the uh the pictures of it. It's eight foot by three and a half by four and a half feet. It's a little bedroom pod, and he pays five hundred dollars a month to live there. It's got a bed, it's got some shelves in it, some LED lighting. Um, he's going to put some cork on the outside of it because it's you know it's got to be soundproof so he's now paying five hundred bucks a month. To basically live in a crate in a guy's living room in San Francisco. But it's a good deal. Want to hear the update on the story? Yeah.
2: City officials in San Francisco contacted him afterwards to tell him that his box was a fire hazard and telling him that he had to move. They were alarmed that other people might follow his example and build these pods and, uh, I guess, catch their apartments on
1: fire. Hold it. You are saying my pod is a fire hazard. That's what he's saying. Well, it's made of wood.
2: The housing codes, the fire codes, and the building codes are fairly restrictive in terms of what you can and can't do inside in terms of coming up with another enclosed bedroom, said the director of public affairs for San Francisco's Department of Building and Inspection. With these, types, uh, with these types of what I call creative efforts to try and cope with what everyone recognizes as a tough housing market, you still have to follow some basic safety rules. Hmm. <sighs> now, the medium for a one-bedroom, medium price for a uh, median price for a one-bedroom San Francisco apartment is $3,590 a month.
1: I know, his pod's only 500 bucks.
2: There you go. So
1: he's trying to figure
2: out a way to exist
1: in that city. I'll risk it. I'll risk a fire. Yeah. The city won't, but yeah. yeah, The city won't let you. And yet, (laughs) interestingly, so is it possible that the city requirements and restrictions are what is causing the housing problem? No, it's the driving
2: up of the uh, general price of houses, apartments, land. But but I
1: wonder if a lot of the restrictions – Dry, like, for example, in San Francisco, a lot of the homes mm-hmm. had to be re, re, uh, retrofitted. retrofitted for uh, earthquake proof, Could which be. Was, was a law.
2: It might be Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. a, their fault. Too. I have a lot
1: of family that live there. It's probably – yeah, it's everybody's fault. <laughs> it's got to be Trump's fault somehow. Anyway, uh, don't be building a pod in some guy's apartment in San Francisco. They're going to get you. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. One more hour of solutions. We'll be right back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter. At Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
1: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three of the show. If you haven't listened to the first two hours, holy cow, have you missed it? You got to back it up. There was a Bodie McBoatface update. We had a Bodie McBoatface update. Sad this, truth. It's
9: probably eight percent accurate this time.
1: He said it again. Yeah.
9: No, I'm raising we'll, the bar.
2: We'll figure it out. Maybe next time I'll just unplug the microphone. Yeah.
1: And we'll just go throughout the show, going, "Oh,
2: his microphone
1: doesn't work. Oh, what bummer. happened? Bummer." It's Banana Day, by the way. Yeah. The origins of Banana Day, which is aimed at celebrating bananas in every conceivable sense of the word. Banana Day? Yeah. It's bananas. It's crazy bananas. (laughs) However, it's known that every year students at prestigious American universities use Banana Day as a wonderful way of celebrating this humble lunchbox standard. What? I don't know. That you wrote. Some of these days. I didn't write it. I somebody, copied and pasted. Somebody wrote that. It's bananas day. It is the day so, you celebrate. It really is the perfect food. Eat a banana. And it comes in its own wrapper. A little carrying case. It's and even when it's nasty and bruised and yucky, guess what? Make some bread. Make some bread. Make some bread. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Ben, have you made banana um bread ice cream?
2: No.
9: I'm making banana nut ice cream. Mm.
1: Mm, that which could be Which is similar. Yeah. Have you, you know what? Try banana, yeah, try banana. Strawberry. Cream. Pie. Banana cream. Ice cream. Mm. You need to make that. That could be good. Let's try that tomorrow. <laughs> what are you doing tonight? <laughs> make me some ice cream,
9: but not in the tub. Okay. Uh, a sink batch?
1: Let's just make it, don't you have like a mixer? Just make it in an ice cream mixer.
9: Okay. I'll I'll see what I can do. And wear gloves. For, oh. For sure. Is that normal? Follow Not common, for you.
2: commonly approved food handling
1: practices, please. But please. Okay. Please do. Let me ask you this. This seems a little uh, weird. A Siamese cat, Cupcake, named Cupcake, survived a 260-mile journey through the mail after she fell asleep inside a shipping box with DVDs. Hmm. The female cat fell asleep in a box in Falmouth, Falmouth, England, as her owner was packing it. She arrived eight days later in West Sussex, dehydrated and nervous, but otherwise well. And tormented
2: by DVDs that she could not watch.
1: Totally, totally tormented. (laughs) I want to watch this. Since Cupcake had an identifying microchip, the person who received the box was able to find Cupcake's owner. By the way, have we microchipped Ben yet? No. Okay, because that's on the list. That'd
2: be beneficial. Sometimes he wanders off. Why
9: why do you guys talk about this when I'm right here?
2: Oh, we didn't think you were listening. It's okay. You're you're listening now? You sort of phase out sometimes.
5: Microchip the board (laughs) up.
2: So you're you're packing up your belongings and your cat gets into the box Mm -hmm. and you don't see it. Just like the guy that got in the
1: FedEx airplane and fell asleep the other right. day. What's the deal? People are so tired I don't know. that they don't even know it. And then you would think that the lady that shipped off a box would be thinking when her cat wasn't there. Wouldn't it come to you that, well, I wonder if I, I, wonder if I shipped her? Where's my cat? Hmm. hmm. She was kind of quiet while I was packing. <laughs> anyway, all is well. Cute little cupcake. Went to Grove Lodge Veterinary Hospital, and uh, she's fine. She's fine. That's good news. She, she actually will not travel anymore. Apparently not. According to her handlers. Um, <laughs> that's pretty sad. Poor, poor little cupcake. It's a cute name, by the way. Cute name for cupcake. By the way, that might be, if you're going to watch cat videos, that might be a wonderful video to watch. Traveling with cupcake. Just a little video of Cupcake. In her container, in her box, as we just send her to different places. Um, As we said earlier, uh, the sad news about Bodie McBoatface, which has quickly become um, one of our favorites on the show. This is the boat uh, that's supposed to be a research vessel. And um, they were looking for a name. And the government, the British government, threw out this idea, hey, let's figure it out online. And all the fans online came up with the name Bodie McBoatface. And then it won like four times more votes than any other name. Well, apparently the minister of uh, um, science for the UK will not says it's not happening. We're not doing that. We're not naming it Bodie McBoatface. This is a serious vessel with a lot of serious stuff going on. We study important issues facing humanity: global warming, climate change, rising sea levels. We're not going to name our boat Bodie McBoatface. So we need your help. We need another name. That's another example of rigging the system. Again. Just accept it. Anyway, we got to get to headlines. Uh, You know, can you believe it? I forgot to get to our headlines. Crazy. But uh, Katie Jarvis is with us. She's going to give us the latest and greatest updates on what's going on around the rest of the country. Katie, what's up?
3: Thanks, Matt. Following Bernie Sanders' New York upset, his campaign manager said that even if Hillary Clinton wins all the delegates to secure the nomination and lead the popular vote, Sanders' campaign will fight to flip superdelegates all the way to the convention. He said that Clinton's victory in New York was because of her special relationship with the people, but argued that that won't be the same in other states. Criminal charges have been filed against Michigan state workers and a Flint City worker. Felony and misdemeanor charges were issued against the employees in connection to the Flint water crisis. A district court judge authorized the charges for the one Flint City employee and two workers from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. The city employee is accused of tampering with evidence when he allegedly changed testing results to show there was less lead in the city water than there actually was. He's also charged with willful neglect. The workers from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality are charged with misconduct in office, tampering with evidence, and a treatment violation of the Michigan Safe Drinking Water Act. President Obama is visiting Saudi Arabia as 9-11 accusations against officials there mount. The president arrived today and tensions surrounding a confidential 9-11 congressional intelligence report are intensifying both at home and abroad. The president has urged the release of the documents, which conclude that Saudi officials in the U.S. might have had a hand in engineering the September 11th terrorist attacks but Saudi officials have denied accusations. Stateside, there is bipartisan support for a bill that would let American citizens sue Saudi Arabia for the 9-11 attacks. The president opposes this bill due to the window it would open for other nations to do the same to the United States down the line. And Mitsubishi has admitted they falsified data. Mitsubishi Motors admitted to falsifying fuel economy test data on more than 600,000 vehicles. The Japanese automaker's shares dropped more than 15%. That's more than, a, than it has in a decade. The company said that it has stopped production and the sale of the affected vehicles, and it's created a panel to investigate. The manipulation data involved over 100,000 Mitsubishi light passenger cars and other vehicles produced for Nissan. And that's an update for today. Back to you, Matt.
1: Thank you, Katie. Um, it, uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting day. And I found something that I think is super important for Ben. Um, Ben, you know how we've been trying to have you date more and and find a date? I found the way to do it. It's so simple. Why didn't we think of this earlier? It's called smell dating. And it's a very simple process. It's it's love at first whiff. This can't be good. It's really good. No, it can't be good. It's good, and it's if you're get going it by smell, yeah, no, but that's that's how all animals do it. What's you doing, Ben? He's sniffing. Apparently, here's how it goes: a New York matchmaking service that promises to help single people sniff out their perfect match by breathing in the odors from dirty T-shirts. I noticed
9: you brought some T-shirts with you. Are, are those for me?
1: Yes. Okay. They're from some um, wonderful ladies that uh, are looking for love and partnership. Um, artists Tiga Brain and Sam Levine, an editor and researcher at New York University, created Smell Dating, which they describe as an art project. But uh, each of the first 100 clients received a T-shirt to wear for three days straight without bathing. So you don't bathe. You just wear your T-shirt for three days straight. Then the clients uh then made the t-shirts back uh, or mailed the t-shirts back to Brain and Levine Sweatshop at NYU where they were cut into swatches and the smell dating then sent batches of 10 mixed swatches back to clients to sniff this week. Okay. So so, so right now people are sniffing those 3-day used t-shirts.
9: So can I smell some of them?
1: Well, Yeah. Give me a minute. I got to get him away from Terry. (laughs) This sounds so gross. So a match will be made if one client likes the scent of another and the olfactory attraction is mutual. In other words, if client 55 likes client 65 and vice versa, put a heart around it, brain said. The idea is based on the science of pheromones and the chemical signals that creatures from gerbils to giraffes Send out uh, this pheromone to entice their mates in. Clients who pay a one-time fee of twenty-five dollars dive in nose first, unaware of a potential smell mate's age, gender, or sexual orientation.
9: See, I've I've been using this technique to find dates for years.
1: Well, no, 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 no. You just haven't been washing your clothes. That's different.
9: No, I mean I, I smell. Oh, like, oh, sorry. You the smell the other way around. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which is again why HR has been talking to you about that other issue about smelling. Wait, which
9: but, one? Oh, oh, the smelling. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like when we hold a when we hold a meeting with the producers, you're not allowed to go smell everyone. <laughs> that's that's creepy, right? Okay.
9: Well, it, I'm not really smelling them. I'm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So so um, now that I find this out, that uh, you pay the one time fee and then. You don't know the the mates, the so you might like. What if you end up liking, you know, somebody that's really not your type, but you just like their smell?
9: That's a really good question.
1: Or what if? And I think you'd have a huge advantage in this game because your shirts, you know, they just you'd have the normal smell, but you would also have the smell of ice cream. That's true. Which would make you get picked up in a second.
9: It'd be unsuspecting. It seems
1: like a really gross way to date. I don't want to be
9: It has a strawberry. I don't want to taint
1: it, but that is pretty nasty. <laughs> I'd kind of rather But you know, that's happened, I guess. Like have you ever um your like your girlfriend or your your wife, what have you, leaves town and you smell her pillow or and like uh, or a T-shirt. You think you have that smell forever. That's this attraction that you don't even pay attention to is the smell. But I would believe that three days of ooh, Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I told you. This couldn't go – this will go badly. You start basing things off smell. Eh. I know, but don't you smell your food? Yeah, and if it smells bad, I don't continue. <laughs> Or do you? I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> or do you? Come on.
1: Wow, I mean, I that smells it. horrible. Let's eat that for dinner. But no. it is interesting. It's a part. Pheromones are real. We know they're real. Oh, yeah. So why wouldn't you just want – let's just – let's get rid of the dating thing. Let's just do a pheromone lineup. Just start getting everybody It It just connected. feels problematic. I, some, I think it depends, issues. too, what part of the T-shirt you got. Right. Like, I mean, if you got, like, the sleeve, that's nothing. Right. But if you get, like, an underarm. Hmm. Ugh, it, could, it
2: could be the pits. You're bad.
1: Sorry. I,
9: I'm willing to try anything. I, like, you guys are already married, but yeah. Yeah. I, I'm willing to try Well, this,
1: so. Wow. I'd, I'd look it up. Just the le- vo- leave the, vo- the shirts on my desk. The and voice of I'll desperation. Wow. Yeah, we, we will. We'll have you. I'll leave, I'll leave the swatches for you to go okay. check out. But be careful because, again, it's blind. You don't know. All of a sudden, somebody's going to show up. And it's probably going to be like some six-nine guy named Chuck. Uh, I think you picked my number.
9: <laughs> well, they have to be women, right?
1: I don't know. What? I don't think so. I don't know. We'll no. see. There there could be. I don't it, think so. It it's, could be an app. Is it an app? You're not going to know the, the mate's age, gender, or sexual orientation. Wow. So it could be <laughs> surprise. Talking about the, the roulette of all roulettes. By the way, you smell like ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and I like ice cream. See, yeah, it could be... You're in for a crazy... Problematic. ...dating life. Yeah, let's not do that. Okay, uh,
9: yeah.
2: Probably a bad I, idea. Let's actually do it with no, you. No, 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 no. we'll just do it. I am done, yeah. It's too late. I'm you're out. Said yes. Bye.
1: We're going to take a break, folks, and uh, save Ben from himself. But uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking about emotions. Does uh, Does the way that you deal with your emotions, that you see your emotional impact on others and how others impact you emotionally... Is that based on culture, or is that just natural to all humans? Well, some of the latest research shows a lot of our sense and understanding about emotions. It's cultural, folks. Different countries, different people from different countries approach emotions differently. Stick with us. Interesting stuff. Dr. Igor Grossman will be joining us. We'll be talking about it in just a minute. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all know that classic scene with the patient lying on the psychologist's couch. And we know exactly what the psychologist is going to ask, right? So how do you feel is such a simple question, right? It's just basic. But the answer might be quite complex. Um, Depending on where you live in the world, you probably realize that the answer of how you feel might be different uh, based on your situation or your upbringing But have you ever wondered that um, a bigger factor might just simply be whether you live in Russia or Japan? Do they evaluate how they manifest their emotions and feel about things? Are their feelings, you know, is their approach to emotion different than here in the United States? Dr. Uh, Igor Grossman joins us. He's an assistant professor of psychology in the social psychology area at the University of Waterloo, and he conducted a study on how emotional complexity manifests in different cultures. He joins us today to discuss the countries where people are the most emotionally complex. Dr. Grossman, welcome to the Matt Townsend show.
7: Thank you, Matt.
1: Thank you. This is a To me, this is a really interesting uh, study you've done because I just thought you know, emotions were universal, basic to humans, and we all looked at them or thought about them the same way. But it sounds like your study is telling us that, uh, depending on your culture, and uh, we might actually have a more complex view of emotion.
7: That's correct. Uh, what we found is that people in different societies. Uh, seem to report uh, the emotions in somewhat different ways. I mean, even though they all basically may agree on uh, what emotions may be important, what makes them happy, what makes them sad, there's still quite a bit of nuanced variability.
1: And is that variability, I guess it, it is just based on how they report? Is it based on their culture? Oh, Dr. Grossman, sounds like we have lost that contact for a minute we will uh um, oh yeah we lost it so we'll we'll try to get you back on the line uh as you're calling from waterloo in uh, great britain there it's uh it's quite a call when when i think about this cuz i teach when i work with my clients about emotions all of the time and you can recognize them and i guess that's what he was saying is in the end we we, they, we still manifest them but it's kind of how we describe them it's how we talk about them it's how we see these emotions and how they impact us that uh, might be the bigger, the bigger impact, which, again, is, is super important, too, when you think about the fact that um, I, I used to say that emotion is one of the universal languages, right? It always speaks. So if somebody's mad, if somebody's angry, that emotion will speak to us. Um, we've got Dr. Grossman back on the phone. Dr. Grossman, thank you so much. We, uh, sorry we lost you there.
7: Yeah, sorry, Matt. I don't know what happened here.
1: That's okay. No, it's
7: mixed emotions.
1: That's right, exactly. So, talk to us more about what you're finding in your research. So, you were saying, I think that um, we, we all we all still have emotion. We all manifest emotion. It's more how people in different countries interpret and communicate about the emotion.
7: That's correct. I and mean, how people experience, uh, for instance, uh, sadness and uh, happiness, uh, do they view them as very distinct, or do they sort of say, well, this situation may have a little bit of both. So those type of uh, questions are the ones that we try to address in our research. Hmm. I mean, generally also, I have to tell you that I mean, many scientists currently uh, view emotions as greatly socially constructed. What it means is that you may have a sense of happiness or sadness, but what exactly do you experience is very much drawn not necessarily from uh, your bodily functions, but also from your interactions with other people. So you, you face somebody, and by being with this other person, you may start experiencing certain emotions.
1: Hmm. So, really, it's 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 I guess like a learned behavior through social interaction, and and um, and that I guess that tells us. I mean, I guess we can see that, right? When people are mourning in certain countries, they've learned to mourn a certain way.
7: Right. Uh, the, there are cultural norms that influence uh, how exactly you may express your emotions but also what exactly you may be feeling may vary uh, dramatically based on um, so-called scripts or the norms uh, that your culture tells you that you learned from your early, early childhood. Um, So some cultures, for instance, don't have uh, words even for some of the emotions that we view as uh, very mundane and everyday life. Hmm. Uh, For instance, uh, in uh, some of the societies in uh, Southeast Asia in small islands, um, the experience of uh, an expression of anger uh, is viewed as taboo and so people don't really uh, report feeling angry instead of saying i'm angry at somebody they start saying that well my stomach doesn't feel well <laughs> so they psychosomatize this experiences
1: interesting yeah so i mean then i guess if if we if it's about a stomach ache then we don't we, it's almost like you i you might feel like i don't make you angry like in the united states you'll hear the phrase a lot oh you make me angry do, do they attribute their anger to different places? I mean, the, in, in the South Pacific, like you were talking about, they don't even use the word anger. But are some countries not even thinking that they cause emotional issues for others?
7: Yeah, well, to some extent, if you have this belief that emotion is at least as much uh, a socially constructed, sort of uh, emerges in an interaction uh, as it is internal – you may uh, then have a very different attitude towards uh, such things as anger and where they come from and who is responsible and so on.
1: Wow, that's correct. This is fascinating learning. Um, you also have been able to identify that that some countries are more uh, emotionally complex. What do you mean by that?
7: Right. Uh, so the notion of emotional complexity <laughs> is in itself fairly complex yeah. in the sense that the researchers still don't know uh, if there is one unified definition for it. Um, right now, uh, there are at least two distinct ones that we try to examine in our work. Uh, one is uh, coming from Uh, It's kind of more um, spiritual traditions of uh, Southeast Asia and East Asia, namely um, talking about your positive. Negative emotions together rather than as opposites. So it's a, some kind of a dialecticism, sort mm. of this yin yang orientation mm. that you don't really view everything as black or white or good or bad, but there is a lot of gray. And so that's one of the uh, fairly dominant ways mm. to view um, uh, what uh, is about mixed emotions or emotionally complex experiences. Mm. And then there is another one. And this other view uh, comes from uh, clinical research, clinical psychology, psychiatry, where uh, researchers in the Western world have studied um, di- the ability to differentiate your emotional experiences. So what does that mean? That means that uh, you're able to distinguish among a variety of, say, positive or negative discrete experiences. So for you, it's not all just bad But you can say, well, this situation, I feel anger, but not so much sadness. In that situation, I feel more sadness, not so much anger. It's not just all together. So you can uh, differentiate what actually you may be feeling in a given situation. And this tendency, the emotional differentiation tendency, has been linked in the clinical literature with – all sort of costs of uh, benefits for regulating your emotions. And those people who are not able to differentiate the experience as well, they they are not able to quite often function properly. They uh, report being sick more often, uh, having health problems and so on.
1: Hmm. Which I guess too would be, I guess, in that more clinical psychiatric view or Western, I guess, ish view is more about the ability then to own your own religion and control your, your your. I mean, sorry, own your own emotion and control your emotion.
7: Yeah, to, to some extent uh, uh, that, but also that uh, you're able to really and very precisely tell what you feel, and if you're not able to do that, then you may have a, a problem. But also the the idea behind it and why it may be important, this ability to differentiate, I think well, emotions have a lot of power over... Uh, and they they provide a lot of information for how to handle situations. If you feel anger, you start experiencing uh, um, uh, lots of other things at the same time. You start to prepare yourself to react. Uh, so in many ways, emotions are this kind of tendencies uh, that help us to prepare to react to situations. If you're able to differentiate well what exactly you may be experiencing instead of putting everything into one basket and just having some kind of rule of thumb for everything in your life, then you're better able to live functionally. Hmm. Uh, so that's the idea behind
1: it. Hmm, powerful. Um, really, I mean, I guess the more we understand emotions, and they are complex, uh, probably the better it's got to be for all of us. We'll take a break. Let's come back, uh, Dr. Grossman, and continue this this learning moment, figuring out more about our emotions. I'm also interested to find out of uh, which, which countries you find to be um, the most complex emotionally. Interesting stuff coming from your research there in uh, at Waterloo. And we'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. friends to the Matt Townsend Show. This just in, apparently, the University of Waterloo is in Ontario, Canada. Not in England. The whole time I'm thinking of Waterloo Station. Oh, it's got to be over there somewhere. Nope. It's in Canada. And we're talking to a wonderful professor uh, from there, from the University of... um, of Waterloo, uh, Dr. Igor Grossman is joining us and he has uh, been doing some research with another professor from the University of Michigan about the countries where people are most emotionally complex. They wrote an article in the Atlantic uh, magazine, um, Atlantic.com, and they're walking us through. Actually, uh, Dr. Grossman is walking us through some of this uh, very interesting research on emotion. Dr. Grossman, welcome back to the show.
11: Thank you for having me, Matt.
1: Thanks for being in Canada. <laughs> I had no idea. Hey, um, talk to me about the countries that you found. In the research, I know that um, you studied people from um, all over the place, and one of the things that you found is, I guess, certain countries, students, college students from Russia, U.S., Japan, India, they, um, they, all, they, they expressed their emotions and, and, and talked about their emotions during different experiences. What did you learn?
7: We um, looked at various indicators. So, in one of the studies that you just mentioned, uh, we looked at the experiences uh, that people report in their everyday life and uh, how intense do do they report feeling different emotions such as uh, happiness, sadness, and so on in these different uh, experiences from their life. And so, we had samples from uh, Japan, India, Russia, Germany, UK, and the US. And what we found is that across a large number of indicators that we used to measure uh, various aspects of uh, emotional complexity, uh, Japanese were on the one end, Indians and Russians uh, were kind of in between, and Germany too on some of them, and then UK and the US were on the very bottom. So th- that is, uh, they didn't uh, report that much complexity relatively to these other countries. Hmm.
1: And that's and that I guess could go back to some of the other things we've been talking about, like differentiation right, and um, emotional dialect dialectism is that is that the difference
7: uh, yeah, so basically uh, this is of course very preliminary because whenever you find cultural differences you there are twenty different ways you can explain why there are cultural differences, so much more is needed, but so far, um, we have some evidence that uh, and it uh, supports our theory. Our theory is that, um, basically, in this uh, Western countries such as UK and the US, and we also found in another study evidence for Canada and uh, Australia. In, in these Western countries, you have. Um, a notion of emotions, a lay view of emotions that is sort of originating from inside of you. It's like who you are. It's internal. And so it's very important to be very, if you have this view of emotions, it's very important to be very consistent and uh, not uh, to be sort of this wishy-washy, uh, I feel have mixed feelings, because you need to know what you're feeling. That's kind of the model of emotions that is encouraged in our society in, the, in North America, for instance. Uh, in contrast to that, in Japan or to some extent India and Russia, you have this views of uh, the emotions as being part of the social fabric so it's uh your emotions are not necessarily um, defining who you are uh, what is defining who you are the social relationships with other people. so you are much more attuned to um, others in your social environment and when you look then at at the social environment. You may see it sometimes that, well, you may be feeling this at this moment, but these other people seem to be feeling something else, too. And that makes you to start uh, you start to appreciate uh, the various emotional experiences that may be happening, even though uh, you may be sort of feeling sadness. You may see that somebody else is not necessarily feeling sadness at the same time. Hmm. It really leads to a more complex representation of emotion. So that's where our theory is sort of coming in. We think that um, this culture such as Japan, India, Russia, they have this greater focus on other people, um, more socially oriented instead of inward, uh, personally oriented. And that enables them in turn to see the emotions in a more
1: complex way. Is, Is the complexity reflective of the stress that you feel? Like, is it easier... For those that are more socially, um, emotionally focused, are they more able to heal quickly or easier versus those that are more interest, intro, intra, or interde- or independent in their uh, evaluation yeah. of emotion?
7: Um, that's a very interesting question. So, well, to some extent, uh, there is some evidence, not uh, conducted by us, but by others showing that those people who, including North America, in the United States and in Canada, those people who focus really on reflecting on the experiences and repeatedly go through, crunching through negative, stressful events again and again, that they are at the... Um, the end of the spectrum in a sense that they are more likely to be subject to depression uh, other mental health problems it's not a very healthy strategy yeah um, uh, so there, there is definitely indication that uh, for Westerners it is in uh, ironically maladaptive to focus so much on the self yeah Yet, nevertheless our society tells us to do so this is the because of the great uh, cultural norms
1: we live in. Man, Igor, you've got to get on this. This is huge. This is big. I mean, this is really important to know, right? Yes. I mean, it, and, and it sounds like you're, you're really just getting into it as a, I mean, it sounds like the, the entire, you know, field of um, and focus on emotion is, it's kind of, it's, it's newer than, than, I guess, a lot of other fields in therapy and psychology.
7: Well, it has been uh, central to, uh, uh, to psychotherapy and to psychology in general, but um, it's a, certainly this kind of cross-cultural work is relatively new and definitely always needed to, uh, to incorporate a more sort of holistic perspective on how our macro-cultural society may be informing what is considered good, how we feel, and so
1: on. Well, Doctor Igor, Igor Grossman, we appreciate you and um, keep up the great work at the University of Waterloo. We'll continue to look for more of your writings, and uh, we thank you so much for being here. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, and talk about an, emo- an emotionally uh, stable, you know, conversation. Stick with us, folks. We're going to be talking with our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. I just saw him; he's in the building. Spencer Linton is home. From his, his Disneyland trip We're going to find out about that uh, Interesting discussions coming up Stick with us This is the Matt Townsend Show We'll be right back Welcome back folks a little tribute to Spencer Linton, who we thought would always be ours, and uh, now we're going to shoot it down. He's back in town, folks, after a long, extended trip to Disneyland with his family. Uh, hello, gentlemen. How you doing, Spencer and Jerem? What's going on?
12: No, I'm, I'm not fantastic.
1: Did you Boy, like that Justin tribute? Justin
12: come a long way, huh?
1: Yeah. We like to, we're giving you a little tribute because we missed you.
12: I missed you, too.
1: Like, Like, we really missed you.
12: How much did you miss me? This is getting weird? Can you quantify that
1: seven miss- missing units
12: <laughs> units my, my one half my, portion my four year old <laughs> uses that because of a show on uh, uh, Nick Nick jr. called uh, team umizumi.
1: ooh I once had an Umizoomi.
12: You contracted an umizumi
1: yeah, Fantastic. <laughs> It's. A, i thought it, I thought it was a sushi roll <laughs> maybe not. Is it not a sushi roll <laughs> uh, i 'm totally off hey, so tell me about Disneyland. I, I need a check in. Um, Terry is dying to know if they have how far along they are on the Star Wars land oh, area.
12: I uh, it is definitely under construction. That is for sure. They have shut down a couple of rides and like Star Killer Base, <laughs> some sort of walkways because uh, because of things under construction. But yeah. it's really exciting and Hyperspace Mountain. The Star Wars feel now to Space Mountain has Ooh, been upgraded. Really, you know, at one point on the ride you hear it's a trap. Oh, like. It's really fun, and they've added some visual elements as you're going on the ride. You know, TIE fighters and, and different, uh, you know, laser beams being wow. shot at each other. It's really cool.
1: You know, we updated our show with the same sound the other day.
12: It's a trap! Yes. It's a trap! Yes, that happens. Originally, that
11: line was, it's a trick. <laughs> on Hyperspace Mountain. I learned that.
1: Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. A little, A little ditty there. A little fact. You just brought in a little fact, Jerem. A fact that nobody... Knew.
12: That no one cared about either. Okay, there were, there were two things that I want to bring up. What? Okay, number one, Jax, my four-year-old, got yes. the coolest toy. What? It is... Like, I've seen a lot of lightsabers and stuff uh-huh. like that. Okay, but they've come out with a new one, and he wanted the blue one, the Luke Skywalker oh, one. Oh, for sure. So he got it. Like, the sound effects, it sounds like an actual lightsaber that you really?
11: hear. Your father's lightsaber.
1: It's it, so cool! Can you hit... So, Terry... Uh, has had the police called on him because he plays lightsabers with noodles <laughs> with his son and beats on him with a noodle.
12: To every north in the cops. When you move it from side to side, it makes that sound like... Oh, it does? That's awesome. That
1: oh, is fantastic. Cool. It is That's so cool. fantastic. I'm
12: like, you're four and you have a toy that I want.
1: Yeah, yeah, well.
11: Well, you can use it whenever you want.
1: When he goes to bed, pal. Party time. You're
12: done in your true. living room. That's true. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Secondly... Yes. <laughs> Never, ever, ever, ever take your four-year-old on Tower of Terror. Oh, it's a crap!
1: Uh, no duh. <laughs> Did you take your four-year-old on Tower of Terror? For well,
12: whatever reason, my wife and I were like, "He'll love it." Yeah, it's up and because he he gets geeked out about you know up and down and he loves elevators and stuff like that. This is no ordinary elevator. Your
1: son has never been on an elevator that fell from eighteen stories.
12: Well, and that wasn't even the scary part. He was scared about. The spooky video. He keeps talking about the spooky video, the Twilight Zone video at the beginning, Uh and then the fact that it's dark. Oh, yeah. And so last night before I went to bed, he kept telling me again and again, I went on it, but I didn't like it. I did not like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I did not like it one bit, Dad. Well, that's, um, you know, what's great about that, though, I really think, Spencer, is that, sure, you've traumatized him, but you have created a memory. Oh wow. That he will never, ever, 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 oh. ever ever forget.
12: Well, I got on it and I'm like, this is way too scary for him. Why are we why did we bring him on this? <laughs> I
11: had a yeah, I went to Jungle Book yesterday and we said we are not going to bring our two year old to that. And that was It'll a be good be decision. Too intense. That yeah. was a good decision. He's almost three. Mm-hmm. But it's like there were parts where I was like, uh Hey, there's a like a tiger jumping out of nowhere and you're like Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want when my two-year-old wakes up in the middle of the night and goes, "Spidels,
8: <laughs> oh Yeah, go,
11: yeah. traumatized. Yeah, you're probably not going to be able to hang out with Bagheera <laughs>
12: in a big dark room. Bagheera cool. is awesome, though.
1: Well, we we're glad Great to have movie, you man. back, guys. I mean, nice. I mean, to have you together. This is the first time you've been together. I was worrying that you guys were like in a in a fight because Jerem yeah, seems so. Jerem seems sad. You I feel mi- like
12: I've been gone forever. I know. We packed so much into five days that it feels like a two-week vacation. Really? And I even had a root canal done.
1: Wow. Yeah. Just, are they offering those at Disneyland?
12: No, my brother-in-law is an awesome dentist, and hes it's been needed to be done for a while. So he just like... like Let's do it.
1: He just puts you in the recliner and... Yeah. Started digging on it.
12: His dental chair recliner.
1: Have fun. Well, yes. I'm, I mean, I'm happy for. Where, does he live in California?
12: No, he lives in Nevada. Okay, Las Vegas. You just so a Nevada. little drop through, sure. In between, yes, Nevada. Nevada, Nevada. <laughs> Oregon. Uh. Are you?
1: Are you guys? Um, you're still doing your show though. today, We are right? doing
12: the show today.
1: What? What? What's new? Anything?
12: And we're going big right out of the gate with me back in studio. It's BYU football. Oh yeah, we're 130 some odd days away. We'll get into the specifics of that during the show. <laughs> <laughs> but the death chart came out post spring football, yep. and we are looking ahead. What are we? Where are we putting all our cards in on Matt? Ooh, Handling ooh. is wrong.
1: We're, yeah, yeah, we're so not.
12: What? Yeah. Which position group do we like the most? Legal in certain states, right? And which mm-hmm. position group do we have the biggest question marks
1: about? Great. This will be good analysis. Okay. 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 We've what also else? We've got
12: Mike Littlewood of the ranked BYU baseball team on. He's going to explain why a lot of the players kept their mustaches when the whole thing was we're going to shave them if we lose the series. They lost the series to St. Mary's, but then an executive decision was made, apparently by some of the team members, that we're keeping the mustaches. Really? Like, yeah. How, how does that work? Why?
1: Well, yeah, no, why? you can't do that.
12: Yeah, a lot, of, many wives and girlfriends right now are
11: like, "Why?" why? <laughs> Ooh, really,
12: <laughs>
1: Tonya
11: Harding or Nancy Kerrigan's wondering as well. Oh,
1: why? Why Nancy Kerrigan? Why? Oh, Have that. You seen yeah, that video I remember. Played? Yeah, Man, yeah. yeah. Oh. I remember it live.
11: That's brutal. It's terrible. That's how bad my life is. Tonya Harding from Portland, not repping the five hundred three very Yeah, well.
1: <laughs> not repping the five hundred three. Hey, I've got an idea for you though, um, and maybe your brother's going to want it. Maybe there's a town in Nevada that he can buy for eight million bucks.
12: You can buy a town,
1: and you can. It's called Cal. It's uh, the name of the town is um, called Cal Neviary.
12: Oh, I drove through it, dude. Yeah,
1: eight million bucks. You can own it.
12: No, I drove through it like yesterday. Yeah,
1: Cal Neviary. It's only eight million bucks. There's 350 people that would be in your kingdom.
12: It's Cal, and then there's like two spaces, Uh and then Nev, Nev. and then two spaces, and then Airy.
1: And with it, by the way, you also get a casino, a diner, a convenience store, a 10-room motel, an RV park, and a mile-long dirt airstrip.
12: Do you want to know what I thought when I drove through it? What? This would be a fantastic place to film a horror movie.
1: Well, see, there you go. Now you can film movies there.
11: I would love to just be uh, Tom Cruise in Far and Away, and you just show up. You just get there sooner than someone else in Oklahoma, and it's just yours.
0: It's yours.
1: You own the place.
11: And then you create a college, and then you name a wagon and the fight
12: song, Boomer Sooner.
1: (laughs) And then you're set.
12: I got there sooner than you, so we are the Sooners. It's my land. Meanwhile, the Native Americans are like, we've been here for a long time. (laughs) Excuse
1: us. (laughs) See, if you guys, I'm just telling you. If, you, if your brother wants to move there, brother-in-law, he'd be the only dentist, I'm pretty sure. And then we could, we could eventually move that and make that BYU West.
12: Well, he's pretty close to Cal Navarre. He's in Bullhead City, Arizona, which is like 30 minutes away See? from that.
1: See? You were there. You were there.
12: He, fly, some good he flies a plane here. from the Vegas area to Bullhead City, Arizona three days a week wow. to work. He flies to work.
1: What a guy. He flies, he flies
12: to work. He flies himself to work. I love me some good steel. That
1: is, everybody. no, that's a, that's a, that's a studly dentist. Yeah. I mean.
12: Well, his pocket's pretty studly too. Oh, my heavens.
1: Let's not go there. <laughs> is <he> really happy. <laughs> Absolutely. I gotta, I, oh my heck, I gotta let you guys go. You got a show to do. We gotta go. Oh, oh, hey, we yeah, gotta go. Hey. Wax hey, hey. on. Wax off. Good luck, gentlemen. Thank you. Knock them dead. Good to have you all back. Woo. Woo-ha. Good stuff. That's amazing. A dentist flies. That's good money. If you're flying, you can always tell how much somebody makes just by what they, how, what vehicle they use. The dentist flies. I drive, and Ben rides a bike.
9: Yep, gonna be moving up soon.
1: But I but you I do like that you wear aviator goggles whenever you ride your bike.
9: It makes it seem more like a motorcycle. Yeah.
1: It all. Doesn't it seem like you're going faster too?
9: Yeah. Totally. I also put like a baseball
1: card in the spokes. Yeah it's fantastic hey um, I wanted to tell you this one last really crazy important story Uh, a car was found dangling from power lines this is probably why you don't have a car because in Tennessee after the authorities said it's just a freak accident the driver identified as a 56 year old woman is believed to have been speeding when she somehow ran up a utility pole and became caught on the wires. So the car hit a pole, ran up the pole, and is dangling from the wires on and the, on the pole. Crazy. Who drives up a pole? I mean, that's like something that you just see, like, you know, in a cartoon. You can't just run up a pole. But this lady, she did. The sedan ended up hanging at least seven feet above the ground, and the driver was extracted with a cherry picker about two hours after the first responders arrived. Right? A I wonder what picker.
9: you'd be thinking when you're hanging there seven feet above the ground.
1: Wow. Is that heaven?
9: Look at the sky. It's a lot more boring than I expected.
1: And then you open your door and you look down and you're like, wow. But then you don't know if your car is like electrically charged now. Are you going yeah. to get electrocuted?
9: So you don't want to touch the metal. No.
1: You got to wait for Cherry. In the cherry picker. I don't know if the guy's name was cherry, but the cherry picker boom truck had to come in to get her out. Scary. (sighs) And you thought you had it bad. Well, as you know, we always like to end the show on a good hero story. Who better to uh, celebrate as a hero than uh, Mr. Noradine Hasib, 43-year-old male from Bournemouth, England. Listen to this. A mild-mannered taxi driver is now being called a hero after saving a woman from a flaming car wreck. Noruddin Hasib was driving a couple uh, home after a night out on early one Saturday morning when they came across a scene right out of an action movie. The car was on the side of the road, smoking and sputtering, and then the flames began to engulf the vehicle. Hasib and one of his passengers worked together to free the woman who was trapped by her seatbelt, but the passenger stumbled and fell to the ground. Hasib, now alone, got everyone out of danger. Haseeb says he wasn't acting. He was acting like a hero, he was just acting like a human being. Haseeb added, if there is a chance for you to help somebody, then you should. The young woman only sustained a broken ankle from the incident, and nobody else was injured thanks to the great work of Haseeb. So, there you have it. Noradin Haseeb, 43 years old. You know what, if you can help somebody, you help them. Brilliant advice, and that's the... Uh, that's the good in the world, folks. We always like to show you that there, there's great things going on. You don't always hear about them because they don't make the news. One of the goals of the show is to show you more of the good out there. We've talked about it all, from emotions to um, just taking care of each other and, and honoring each other's religious values. That's been the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Join us again, 9 to noon Eastern Time, and you can also look us up on iTunes or tune in or on the BYU Radio app. Until tomorrow, folks, take care of each other, watch each other's back, and make it a great one.